This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. I see the crystal raindrops fall and the beauty of it all when the sun comes shining through to make those rainbows in my mind when I think of you sometime and I want to spend some time with you just the two of us we can make it if we try just the two of us And I, we look for love, no time for tears. Wasted water's all that is, and it don't make no flowers grow. Good things might come to those who wait, but not to those who wait too late. We gotta go for all we know. Just the two of us, we can make it if we try. Just the two of us. Just the two of us Building them castles in the sky Just the two of us You and I I hear the crystal raindrops fall on the window down the hall, and it becomes a morning dew. And darling, when the morning comes and I see the morning sun, I want to be the one with you. Just the two of us. We can make it if we try. Just the two of us.
Good morning. <laughs> I was listening to Grover. I know. I wanted to, you know, that I did it for a couple of reasons. I watched Bruce over the, uh, whatever this was, uh, Holly Berry's directorial debut on Netflix. And this song was pivotal. Really? And it also, yeah, it also captures what we're doing here. You know, we don't do any of this alone. Um, there's always um, a collective and you and I together and you and Reyes, it's like, you know, it's alchemy, what happens here on a Saturday mm -hmm. and on. So beyond. So I just want to say good morning to you. Miss you. You miss you too. I miss you too. This, oh, wow. What a, you got the right mood going. This it's early. It's early. Energy, everything is just, oh my goodness. You brought, look, you brought me up because I, man, I think probably most of this may be Monday, but. I because I'm still processing, but uh, so much going on, y'all. Man, so much. Thank you, thank you. This is that's exactly what <laughs> exactly what we needed. The great Philadelphia zone, Grover Washington Jr. And little Bill Withers, you know the Bill Withers. Bill Withers. I think yeah. I think Grover Washington with his with his little thing he's got. This. He, he played later found every yeah Slabport, West Virginia. You can't never let Bill Bill. Yeah, America didn't deserve Bill Withers, but then it don't deserve black people either. But period. Period. So I, I this, um, Ahmaud Arbery was a is a human. Let's do it. Thing. You know, um, who, you know, it's a lot. Uh, the assault on our psyche, um, because we all know if that video, if that dumbass didn't put the video out. How about that? I mean, we're talking what seventy plus days that they. Uh, What's well, a beautiful thing? They're uh, like like his father said. You know, you tore up my family. Now you tearing up your own. I'm 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 encouraged. I hope this whole wait, we not we not on y'all. We are on. We're on. Are we're we on? We're live. You know, there's no 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 third wall here. Oh oh. See, oh. So we'll get to see now the conversations we have off mic. Oh, same as the conversations we have on mic. That's true. Okay, well then let's just go for the record then. <laughs> let, let it let it fall. It's going to fall, baby. It's coming down. I'm 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 very encouraged by that because this is a rotten thing. And rotten things can't be allowed to continue to persist. Or they can, but, you know, what the hell? What does rot do, though? Rot spreads, rot? Well, rot, rot eventually feeds new life. Mm. In fact, that's what those, uh, <laughs> that's what those uh, um, religious extremists found, uh, the Native Americans, the human beings who were here doing. In fact, there was an article in the New York Times a couple of years ago about that. Um, this The... Uh, the the extremists that are called now the pilgrims found that the native people the aboriginal people when they farmed they put things in ironically or kept things in conversation with other things so when you had pumpkins and squash and you had other types of vegetables and fruits growing they didn't clear off all the land and then plant things in sections and rows because obviously that's how you deplete the soil what they did was allow things to grow together and of course, the Europeans, that way of knowing that they brought with them, said, no, let's clear everything and then plant things in rows. And the Americans are like, what are y'all doing? Don't you understand that as these things grow and then we harvest and then they come back and grow and that which we that, that we don't harvest that dies and decomposes, feeds the soil so that all the other things can grow. That's how they all grow together. They are naturally they are growing together. So we kept that going. Said, no, nah, that's not productive. OK, and here we are. Uh, 400 some years later, facing a planet 
where that type of mentality has uh, the planet saying, you know what, this species was a mistake. Maybe we should just get rid of them. <laughs> so <laughs> they ganging up. Oh, shout out to all those scientists in South Africa, by the way, who are paying the price for being honest. Because as we see, this is front page of today's Financial Times. So uh, stock and real prices slide and dash into safety from the new virus variant. But this is, what are they calling it? The uh, what variant is it now? Where are we at? Omicron. Yeah, they jumped over new. Yeah. Well, no, no, new, new. They had new, but new didn't, uh, new didn't ex expand like they thought it would. So they haven't actually, but they, but new didn't jump that way. So in fact, let's see, what are we talking about here? Um, the B one one five two nine, the Omicron, uh, that they are reporting. They're saying that, let's see, it is the latest in an ever-growing line of more than 1,500 recognized lineages of the SARS-CoV-2 virus to emerge since the pandemic began. So apparently there have been over 1,500 recognized lineages. So new was in there, but new didn't hit them like they thought. And so what they are saying, however, is that... Um, and it's funny because there's a little article here called says South Africa travel bans over new COVID variant criticized. And they should be criticized. Why? Why are you banning the Southern African countries when in fact it's the South Africans who as a result of the scientists in South Africa, who as a result of their research, ironically born of the suffering that African people have had that is directly related to the HIV AIDS crisis of decades for decades. They are among the world's most adept scientists at tracing and identifying. And sadly, what they have been what they've been doing is they've been honest in reporting and tracking. So, you know, this virus could have broken out anywhere. But unfortunately, they are looking at oh, the South Africans. No, it ain't the South Africans. It's not the South Africans at all. But I'm saying all that to say that uh, the planet, when when people when human beings push nature, nature pushes back. And so the uh, the farming techniques of the aboriginal many of the aboriginal people um and we talked about some of them last week that the so-called pilgrims uh discovered and thought they could improve on i don't know if it's an improvement or not so things that rot uh often re uh, require i mean uh feed the things that go on to live so uh, as this way that we have uh suffered under this settler colonial way of the last uh 500 years or so continues to deteriorate and rot, uh, we can hope and expect if the species survives something new to be born. Doesn't necessarily mean it'll be new and better, but it will be different than what has come before it. But there's no doubt about it. This system is in deep uh, crisis and uh, it'll hold on for a while. Now, how long that is, you don't know if I have any idea, but uh, but in terms of the case of Ahmaud Aubrey, um, people are saying, thank God. I'm like, God don't serve on juries. Come on now. <laughs> I mean, come on, y'all. At some point, we have to decide that we're not going to be a race of children. Our ancestors were not, you know, a race of children. And we somehow we've been infantilized by this violence of forgetting. God didn't serve on the jury. God didn't write the laws. God wasn't the prosecutor. God wasn't the defense attorney. And as far as uh, shout out to Jackie Johnson, who is being uh, prosecuted for her role, the Brunswick County uh, Judicial uh, Circuit District Attorney, who uh, initially, because uh, one of them, uh, Greg McMichael, worked for her, um, 
she, you know, it's like, oh, no, 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 it's okay. Nothing's going to happen. We're not going to prosecute you. And then when they find out, she recused herself. Uh, she lost re-election, by the way. In, in yeah, I, I wanted to sit in that for a second. Let's uh, do, Let's elections, do have, elections have consequences. Um, so what yeah. happened? Has she been re-elected? Well, I mean, she probably would have uh, had to prosecute, and who knows what the outcome would have been. But she, no, no, but she recused herself anyway. Well, well, that's just it. When she recused herself, so she wouldn't have been in it anyway, but she passed it off to the guy in Waycross, Waycross uh, County DA. And that district attorney's George Barnhill. Um, he stayed on that case until April 2020. Barnhill is an interesting character because he's the one that his initial report was that these white boys were following Amaya Arbery, Arbery uh, in hot pursuit. He said, you know, he's using the key words, hot pursuit. He said they were following in hot pursuit a, a burglary suspect with solid firsthand uh, evidence and probable cause. Uh, he was following, they were following him in their neighborhood and asking him to stop. But Ms. Arbery, not, not Ms. Arbery, uh, Ahmaud Arbery's uh, mother, um, Wanda Cooper Jones, complained. And of course, that was April. So now that white boy that uh, that she tried, that the prosecutor tried to say, okay, well, I got my boy in the neighboring county. Uh, I got to recuse myself. You, you, you got him, right? Oh, yeah, I got him. Tell them they ain't going to be charged. They were following a hot pursuit. They had solid firsthand evidence. He was, in other words, they had already set him up. But then, as you say, the dumb attorney leaked, well, the, uh, then perhaps the answer. Right. It seemed like it was Brian because he took the took the video. The cell phone video. But it could have been a mod because, you know, the young ancestors are ancestors nonetheless. He might have had a little assist from George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. But some ancestors worked through them. And that, and that when that got released, we're here today. But had it not been released? Cats would never have been charged. I mean, they are, after all, deputy police. Shout out Cal Rittenhouse, hanging out there with his uh, with his friend Donald Trump, who'll be running again if, if unless somebody put him in jail. But I, I doubt. I mean, you got people with some heart, like Benny Thompson and them cats in the United States uh, federal legislature, who uh, you know are pursuing this uh, this uh, hillbilly horde that invade. Well, not invaded. Should we say that you invaded a place that has propped you up? for several hundred years, uh, talking about the United States Capitol on January the 1st. Now, clearly, since nothing really bad can happen to you. Um, but at any rate, you know, Benny Thompson then filed a federal lawsuit using, among other statutes, uh, Section 1985 of the United States Code, which goes back to the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871. That's that same uh, statute that uh, made an appearance in Charlottesville last week when uh, that, that, that civil lawsuit against Richard Spencer and them boys, uh, including the killer of... Um, of Heather Heyer and uh, down there in that Unite the Right rally were found guilty. I think Fields, James Fields, the killer in the car, uh, was saddled with $12 million. And uh, Spencer, Jason Kessler, and them all had to pay like 500, had to pay 500,000 apiece. And um, the 50, uh, the five organizations, the white nationalist organizations that helped create the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville in 2017 have to pay a million dollars a piece. And we, of course, know that none of that money will ever see, uh, it, the, the, the victims will never see anything near that money because those people don't have any money. But the, the statute that was used, that the jury used, was the Civil Rights Act of 1871, um, the so-called, uh, the second, uh, no, the third, no, second Enforcement Act, signed by Ulysses S. Grant, the so-called Ku Klux Klan Act. Uh, that act, in fact, is still good law, and that is the act that uh, Benny Thompson, it's, uh, the, the statutes uh, in the current uh, United States Code or U.S. Code 1983 
and U.S. Code 1985. These are uh, sections of the United States Code that are uh, designed coming out of the Civil Rights Act of 1871, the Ku Klux Klan Act, um, to, uh, which has its roots in the uh, Civil Rights Act of 1866, which predates the 14th Amendment. Between the Civil Rights Act of 1866 and the Klan Act of 71, you have the 14th Amendment passed. But prior to the 14th Amendment, you had the uh, Civil Rights Act of 1866, which is supposed to guarantee protection for black people, protection against this type of racial terror and this type of uh, um, um, with racial intent and racial malice to deprive people of their civil rights. And they were aimed directly at formerly enslaved Africans. Now, the irony is that Section 5 of the 14th Amendment passed after 1866, between 1866 and 71, um, says that Congress is authorized to um, to create laws to enforce these laws to enforce the 14th amendment to enforce the civil rights act of 1866 and the Klan act of 1877 but this was a source of controversy and i'm gonna get too far down in this and walk our way back to the prosecutors in, in georgia in the samad aubrey case and but i'm tying it to trying to rein in white nationalism in this very specific regard arguably and i think most legal scholars would agree on this i mean this is not even a controversial take i think there's general consensus that the federal ability to intervene as it relates to federally protected and guaranteed rights transcending any state argument that the states have the power to prevent the federal government from intervening prior to the civil war that power was most 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 robustly used in one specific area of this social structure. And that was enforcing the law that said, if an African person escaped from enslavement and made her or his way to a free state or territory, the federal government had the power to return that person to the state where they were enslaved. It's called a fugitive slave laws. 1850 being the last major one before the Civil War. Now, think about that. The South wasn't arguing states' rights when one of us got the hell away. One of us crossed that Ohio River and got to Ohio from Kentucky, like would you see memorialized in things like Toni Morrison, you know, beloved. When uh, one of us was able to get the hell out of Delaware and get into Pennsylvania, like Richard and Sarah Allen, when one or two or three or a dozen or 200 or 300 of us were able to get away under the uh, guidance of um, um, Harriet Ross Tubman, Araminta, uh, or, or from the Eastern Shore of Maryland, or Frederick Augustus Bailey uh, Douglas, Fred Douglas, getting out of the Eastern Shore of Maryland. Now, if you got to a territory that was free or a state that was free or on a judge, getting the hell up out of Philadelphia before George Washington could take her back to Mount Vernon and setting up in New England, the fugitive slave law said, oh no, the, the federal government has the power to reach into one state and enforce the federal law return you to another state. But the Civil War, of course, saw the birth of the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which was kind of like a place marker to say, well, these people were enslaved. And as, as my friend Catherine Frankie at Columbia University writes in her book, Repair, uh, one of many, 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 many people who have made this, this observation. They, these people were not enslaved anymore, technically, but they were not citizens yet. So, you know, Professor Frankie uses the word, use the letter D, which is what they call them. It's a freed men. You know, the, the gendered language fails, but freed people, 
instead of citizens. So the Civil Rights Act of 1866 is put in place to, to basically say these people have the rights to make it enforce contracts, to not be uh, harmed or infringed, their rights to be infringed upon. They're basically establishing rights for these African people. Now, as Baba uh, Mario Bedelli writes in America, the nation state, one of the founders of the Malcolm X Society in Detroit, um, the uh, the Republic of New Africa, the rape, the modern reparations movement, as he wrote in his dissertation at Temple University, um, uh, Baba Amari, who was the provisional president of the Republic of New Africa, we say, you know, you never asked black people what they wanted. You know, we never had a plebiscite. We didn't get a vote. We went from enslaved to some quasi freed status to with the 14th Amendment citizenship, but you never asked us what we wanted. Maybe we want to go to Africa. Maybe we want to go to the Caribbean. Maybe we just want to go west. Maybe we just want to get away from you. As Fred Douglas said, you ask the Negro what he wants, but the Negro wants to be left alone. But nevertheless, once those rights are extended, there has been a consistent uh, attempt and war against the possibility of full humanity for African people protected by the law in the United States, not exclusively. You've got the Chinese, the Chinese Exclusion Act of the 1880s. You've got the war against the indigenous people, whether you call them Mexicans, whether you call them the many nations of North America, who the so-called Indian Wars. Shout out to General Howard, which is why I don't wear a whole lot of Howard gear, because, you know, General Howard, when he, he left the Freedmen's Bureau and comes back into full-time military service, his primary objective, his primary directive, in fact, is to chase Native Americans all the way to the Pacific Ocean. So, you know, I'm not really a, a big fan of wearing that guy's name, but in all that process, it's a war to curtail certain people's rights in this country. And at the foundation of that is people of African descent. So by the time, and I'll wind this up, by the time you get to the Civil Rights Act of 1871, the President of the United States is the guy who was the general who won the war. This, of course, being Ulysses S. Grant. And there is a constant tussle in the federal legislatures. There's a constant tussle between the states and the federal government over the expansion of these rights to include people of African descent. Mind you, they're still at war with the human beings who are called Indians. You understand what I'm saying? So they still, you know, lying to them through treaty in this last quarter of the 19th century. When it comes to people of African descent in our, and in our governance structure, we've got our own ideas about placemaking. We are out west. We're in Oklahoma. Some of us go into Texas. We, some of us go all the way across. These are the names, none of the history, but these are the names that are fixed on the fictional characters in the harder they fall, as we, you know, as we've talked about, Stagecoach Mary, Jim Beckworth, all them cats. But the point is that as we are struggling for our own placemaking, the country is trying to expand, even as it keeps stitched together, the bitter fight that they had to continue to have a country because the South was going to secede. So by the time you get to the Civil Rights Act of 1871, the federal government understands that in order for this to work, they're still in reconstruction. They're still trying to impose the federal will on this rogue part of the country, which then and now has never made peace with the idea of full African humanity. So they've got to put a club on them. And when they passed that Ku Klux, Act, uh, Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871, that second enforcement act, they are basically saying, look, we're trying to give y'all every opportunity to be racist every opportunity to be this, the, the, the demented, shrunken shadows of human beings that you uh, are. But 
you just keep making it impossible for us to let you be alone with your racism. And meanwhile, black people are like, hey, y'all do what y'all want. We got the strap. I didn't give up my gun from the army so we could just. <laughs> and so granting them, they, they really almost have no choice. So what they really do when they pass that act is like, we got to stomp this clan out of business that came into existence not even 10 years before, 1866, Pulaski, Tennessee, Nathan Bedford Forrest. I was just down there. That's interesting. <laughs> uh, footnote, I just walked through the uh, Nashville airport. This is really what I wanted to talk about today, and we'll get to it because I'm, you know, office hours for those of you who are not in Nubian. It's good to see all the Nubians this morning. And for those of you who are watching this on YouTube, um, well, two footnotes. Well, I should say this parenthetically, uh, Professor Hunter. Everybody I ran into in the airport, because you know, I don't be I ain't been on these planes. It's highly Grima says, you know, COVID, don't worry about COVID in the streets, wear your mask. Don't worry about COVID in the restaurant, wear your mask. COVID is waiting for you in the plane. So it's like, so I was very careful. Double going to see my 90, my, my, my 94 year old mother. I'm like, yo, I got to have everything on. But through the airports, in the places, I stopped in North Nashville. I'm going to talk about that a little bit later. And uh, went up, you know, shout out to the brothers and sisters. I'm in the barbershop sitting up in there, man. We talking and, you know, mask on. So, but when they hear my voice, this is what gets me in trouble. I know that voice. Hey, we be watching you on Karen Hunter. The brothers was like my six-year-old, my nine-year-old all last summer. And when COVID hit in the spring, we was watching y'all. You know, I'm so glad we learned so much. I'm looking, they got bookshelves with all these books on them. I'm looking at the, some of the books we've been talking about that have made their way into that space in North Nashville. And then, of course, you know, listening to family, talking with folks and listening to people, most importantly, listening to people. It really is edifying to know that this space, this place that came out of your head that we are now joining, that we're all in and building brick by brick, moment by moment, is really, has really taken root, not only as an original concept, but as a concept that ties to a long, unbroken genealogy of creating place like this. And the more we remember, the stronger it gets. So I wanted to say that that was the first of the second footnote. The second uh, footnote is that you know, in thinking about this Enforcement Act of 1871, thinking about its roots in 1866 with the Civil Rights Act, thinking about its roots with the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850, and thinking about how all that formation was an attempt to keep stitched together something that has always wanted to tear itself apart. Well, what you see is by 1871, they got to put the hammer down. The federal government would grant the former general in charge as president with his scandal written administration, which is a story for another day. They had to put the hammer down on this Klan. And the Klan was founded not too far from where I was these past few days coming through the Nashville airport. As I'm listening and seeing black people, we talking, people who work there, the sister who owns Tennessee Tribune, a black owned newspaper in Nashville. They just opened a little store in the Nashville airport. I'm like, man, this is crazy in a city I don't recognize anymore, which we're going to talk about as well. They are calling it Cash Vegas. and Ca What's Cash Vegas? What is Cashville? Is it you, Bama Negroes? Anyway, the whole point, sending sending love to you, Karen, sending love to the newbie, and sending love to narrative, saying what they're watching. And I pass a, 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 a poster that says, you know, Nashville's premier public university, uh, Middle Tennessee State University. That's a lie. <laughs> middle, middle Tennessee State University is in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. It was a HWCU. It is a HWCU. 
this is the only public university in Nashville for since 1912, Tennessee State, my alma mater. Tennessee State was precluded by law from allowing white people to come for decades. And when, in fact, the University of Tennessee, Nashville, shout out to you, Rocky Top singing, Rocky Top, you'll always be home sweet home to me. 100,000 y'all in Nayland Stadium. Good old Rocky Top. Woo! Rocky Top, Tanner, all you clan adjacent University of Tennessee, Knoxville football fans. Yes, I said clan adjacent. Because every time I've heard that rebel yell coming out of that stadium, the hair rose up on the back of my neck. Because if you ain't black, playing football on the field and maybe a handful of that family members sitting up there in the stands and them three black cheerleaders, your black behind better be real careful on Saturday afternoons in Knoxville. But at any rate, they tried to open a branch of the University of Tennessee, Knoxville in the 1960s in downtown Nashville. Why? Because they didn't want to go to school at the only public university in Nashville, the University of Tennessee, I'm sorry, Tennessee State University, formerly Tennessee A&I State College for Negroes. But y'all didn't want to go to school with black people. That's the urban university in Nashville. Just like Florida A&M was the urban university in Tallahassee. Just like Jackson State University is the urban university in Jackson, Mississippi. Understand that you didn't want to go to school with us. So you tried to, they tried to have a stealth university that they snuck into downtown and a giant legislator in the Tennessee State Legislature. A giant of the legal struggles of our people in this country the junior apprentice of a brother named Zephaniah Luby, Z. Alexander Luby, who lived in the neighborhood right behind Meharry Medical College across the street from Fisk University, whose house was bombed. He and his wife's house was bombed. One of the, one of the lawyers for the Freedom Riders, one of the lawyers for the Civil Rights Movement students in Nashville, Diane Nash and John Lewis and C.T. Vivian and James Lawson and all them. Um, this, this man, Z. Alexander Luby, his junior protege in their law practice, the great uh, Avon Williams, Johnson C. Smith undergraduate, Boston University School of Law, came to Nashville, a powerhouse, one of the most hated black men in Nashville, and, 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 and swallowed that bitter hatred from the social structure as if it was snacks. It was, it was him, Avon Williams, who was, along with Z. Alexander Luby, two of, if not the two, really, the two point lawyers for the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, Thurgood Marshall and Boys, as they fought to desegregate education in Tennessee. It was it was Avon Williams who uh, fought that case to destroy the University of Tennessee at Nashville. And the case that they filed with Rita Sanders Geyer, Geyer versus uh, the governor of Tennessee at the time, when I was in school at Tennessee State, it was Lamar Alexander, when the case was settled. The University of Tennessee at Nashville dissolved in 1979, thanks to Avon Williams and his intellectual warriors and comrades. And for the first time in American history, a historically black college merged with a historically white college and the historically black college took over the historically white college. And so the University of Tennessee at Nashville doesn't exist anymore. It is, as I went by to see it, anytime I'm in town, I got to go by there. Um, it is the downtown campus of Tennessee State University, and it is named the Avon N. Williams Campus. In fact, when I was student body president my last year at Tennessee State, I helped 
Avon Williams, along with several other representatives, you know, people from the legislature, the president of Tennessee State. But I was so blessed that time to help Avon Williams, who by then was in a wheelchair. He had a, he had a degenerative disease that eventually took his life. But standing there next to Avon Williams as we helped him cut the ribbon when they renamed the University of Tennessee Nashville campus, the Avon N. Williams campus. Y'all go look up Avon Williams. I promise you, y'all need to know who this brother is. Very important. But anyway, I said all that to say this. Walking through the airport, I saw a poster that said, Nashville's premier public university. This is the school in Murfreesboro. It was also started because black people you know, you don't want to go to school with these Negroes. So you go up the road a little bit in Murfreesboro and you create something called Middle Tennessee State University. Same logic as the University of Tennessee, Nashville. You're not going to go to school with black people and black people control Tennessee State, black faculty, black president, black student body. Well, hell, you could add two, three, five, ten, fifteen thousand 15,000 white people to the same place and have even more black people than you have right now. And still you would have the university everybody goes to. And Tennessee State is a thoroughly integrated university, like most HBCUs. There are more white people going to HBCUs than there are black people going to HWCUs in this season of bowl games, where the Negroes you want at Alabama, the Negroes you want at Auburn, the Negroes you want at Texas and Ohio State, the Negroes that you want at Clemson, the Negroes that you want at those schools. Run fast, jump high, make millions while you sitting up eating your snacks in the booster uh, skyboxes talking about how much you love Nick. I mean, <laughs> student athletes. The point is that when they started MTSU, you need a place in Middle Tennessee that ain't Tennessee State. And you know what their mascot was? It's called the Blue Raiders. And every time Middle Tennessee State would come to Tennessee State to play games, basketball games, football, we would make our signs and go and be in the front of the basketball, underneath the goal with our signs. What the hell is a Blue Raider with a Confederate flag? The Blue Raiders was the name of Nathaniel Bedford Forrest's Raider outfit in the Confederate States of America Army. And when they lost that war, Nathaniel Bedford Forrest went to Pulaski, Tennessee, and in 1866, started a little club called the Ku Klux Klan, the Blue Raiders of Middle Tennessee State University. They've since changed the mascot to a dog, but in their heart, yeah, the social structure doesn't. Individuals don't beat institutions. They just wait you out. And I'm walking through the Nashville, Tennessee airport. They're building hotels. They done pushed Negroes out of Nashville. We're going to talk about that, too. They got Now Murfreesboro is considered part of the greater metropolitan Nashville areas like Clarksville and all these other places black people didn't go. And so now Nashville's premier public university. You really? Okay, round two. Hell no. It's a damn lie. And of course, the other strategy is you go get a Negro to be the president of some of these white schools and y'all count that as integration. Meanwhile, the attack on public HBCUs continues in the South. But I don't want to go too far afield on this. I just wanted to make that point that the Blue Raiders was Middleton C. State literally had as their mascot, the heart symbol of the founder of the Ku Klux Klan. No longer, but you ain't Nashville's nothing. You just another bunch of gentrifiers. So at any rate, the Ku Klux Klan Founded in Pulaski in 1866. By 1871, Grant and Boyd, so we got to do something about this. And so what you really have to do, you have this Klan Enforcement Act. 1871, the Ku Klux Klan Act is still good law. Because even though about 12 years later, 1883, the Supreme Court of the United States throws its shoulder in to preserve white supremacy. Hold on, hold on. 
Now all this equality and shit, this is this is too much. So they have a, a line of cases that are consolidated and called the civil rights cases. And that's where the Supreme Court of the United States says that, you know, we're going to establish in, 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 in judge-made law, we're going to interpret these statutes. We're going to interpret this this legislation to say to introduce really what what is called an intent standard in other words you damn near gotta go running down the street with a gun aimed at black people yelling the n-word and pulling the trigger and even then you still might not get convicted because they'll say well that's not racial animus it's personal animus or they got all kind of ways of shrinking it but they basically eviscerate in 1883 section 5 of the 14th amendment which gives congress the ability to enforce the citizenship guarantees of the 14th amendment which were the extension in the constitution of those citizenship guarantees that were offered in 1866 in the civil rights act and after the 14th amendment still reinforced with the Ku Klux Klan Act because you got a terrorist organization running around shooting at black people, trying to stop black people from voting because the first two, the first enforcement acts were aimed at voting rights. In fact, the Ku Klux Klan Act was the third act. There were two enforcement acts before that aimed at voting rights. The 1871 Act goes specifically for the Klan. They have the Klan trials all over the country, places like South Carolina. The records are there. You see a lot of Klan people prosecuted. In fact, the year before, in 1870, under the Grant administration, they established a branch of the federal government that is designed specifically to enforce these Reconstruction Acts and to make sure that the country moves forward. That's a little outfit called the Department of Justice. But and we talked, you know, in fact, Professor Hunter, we talked about this. Uh, we talked about this last year, so I've pretty gone on too far. I'm gonna, I'm gonna end, end this little part right here with this. The intent standard that was established with the civil rights cases in 1883, in 1883, so the Supreme Court shrinks so deeply the intent of the 14th Amendment that it almost neutralizes it. Because what they're saying is that the federal government has no power to reach into the purview of private action. It's got to be state action. And to establish state action, you also have an intent standard. So now it just becomes damn near impossible. You almost have what Derek Bell and them have said. You almost have to have a dramatic instance, something that is so egregious, that it is so obvious, like United States versus Price. These are Price, them, the Mississippi burning cases, right? Shorner Goodman and Cheney. You got to have something so egregious that no one can look away. And that's why in Charlottesville, that jury faced with the facts of the Unite the Right rally in 2017 in a car plowed into these protesters and racists run out there saying, Jews will not replace us and all that. Richard Spencer and them guys, it was so egregious that the intent standard was met. And so they reached back for a statute that is still good law if you're going to enforce it and that's the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871. Now, we're going to see whether or not that same standard can be held when Benny Thompson and them guys, uh, Congressman Benny Thompson at Mississippi and them filed that federal lawsuit against Trump's boys, January the 6th, Roger Stone's boys, January 6th, Mark Meadows' boys, January uh, 6th, uh, 2021. Uh, all you federal legislatures with your little fake guts, and that includes you too, Lauren Barbert, you punk. Because you don't really want to dust up with Ilhan Omar if just two of y'all. You may pee on yourself and go try to get up. Somebody press this button. Press this button. <laughs> right. But the point is that we'll see if the federal if the federal government has, if, if that lawsuit can survive, you know, it, it survive long enough to see whether or not that same Ku Klux Klan Act, Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871 can be used against those, the hillbilly horde who invaded, invaded, occupied, 
claimed, reclaimed, however you want to put it, the United States Capitol, January the 6th, um, 2021. We'll see. But in Charlottesville, it worked. In Charlottesville, it worked. And so, I mean, that's just, you know, thinking about his background before we talk about Ahmaud Aubrey, you know, that social structure continues to attempt to look for ways to accommodate white nationalism. So it isn't enough to say, I don't think this is right. Yeah, but you can say you don't think it's right, but you looked away and if it weren't for a video, you had two prosecutors ready to let those white men go because they have been deputized. Just like the Klan was deputized, just like that January 6th was just, y'all deputized these white boys, just like Kyle Rittenhouse was deputized and given the force of law to be allowed to do that. And he runs down there with Donald Trump because he's going to be okay. He's going to speak at the damn Republican National Convention. Mark my words, you allow, you, by allowing it, that means you're with them. It ain't but two sides in this. And that's why we can never trust this government and this country until it is completely and thoroughly remade. Because every time you've had the opportunity to do the right thing, You've looked aside and let this cancer continue to grow. So now you that sick with cancer is probably terminal. But I, I'll stop. I'll stop. For now. <laughs> oh, oh, can't hear you. Can't hear you. I, I muted myself because I don't. I, you know, I, I have utterances while you're talking. I feel you like should, church. Church. You know, I'm I'm eight over here, amen and stuff. <laughs> I want to sit in the maturity part for for a minute, and you know, this is for everyone listening, myself included. You know, when you know better, you do better. And part of this exercise that we're in every Saturday, now Monday, Sunday, you know, just about every day I'm watching Nubians bring their brick and create spaces. Please. We're learning things most of us have never heard before, even though most of us have read. We know how to read. We've read books, you know, yeah. and the things we watch. Now I'm seeing all of the white facedness of everything <laughs> to the point where, you know, you, you drop clan adjacent. I'm like, let's not call people racist. That's overdone. They don't even feel it, process it. They don't care. Your clan adjacent, that feels so much better as we are, you know, remembering all of the things that we should have known from the door. Yes. I feel like we need to sit in this maturity space because I think a lot of us spend a lot of time trying to find, to make sense of senselessness, trying to fix the cancer that is, as you just said, metastasized, yes. uh, probably terminal. We are trying to find solace in a in a space where there is none, really, right? And these little glimpses, these little pieces, even like I, I liken Kyle Rittenhouse and OJ. For Black people, OJ getting mm. off and killing those two people was cathartic because we've never seen that before. Not that it was right what he did, but it was like the, the justice system let a black man go for killing a white woman. Oh, that's right. That's that, right. That was unheard of, you know. And in many ways, Kyle Rittenhouse was the not the opposite because that's expectation, but they felt the way about about Kyle Rittenhouse the way we felt about OJ until you know OJ showed his whole ass. <laughs> but you know right. this maturity that you talk about what what we are infants um I can't say the word we've been made infants. And, and toddlers in the way in which we see ourselves in the world, this process is a, allowing a lot of us to grow up. But where is that space? And what does that look like when you say, mm. you know, we're not mature? Mm. It's, not an it's, it's aspirational. Like, how do we grow up quickly? I think it's, um, I think by remembering that, we are adults and we've been adults and we always have. And, and that's not to disparage, you know, there are moments when I feel defeated. I think we all feel defeated. And I don't mean as an individual, 
and this is why, again, you know, for the hundreds and, 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 and every week, and as, as I said, you know, on Monday nights when we do office hours in Nubia, that's more like really a kind of free-flowing conversation. And there's a lot that I saw in the last four or five days of travel and then just sitting with family and community and elders that I am still very much digesting. I only got back early this morning. And so a lot of that we'll be talking about in Nubia on Monday. And the maturity, I think, comes with this first act. The first act is to listen, is to listen to each other and to listen to our memory. That's what placemaking, you know, that's the food of placemaking. And again, in our Africana studies structure, the social structure question asks, who are Africans to other people? We ask that question first because that is the thing that we are bombarded with. It is not the thing that should occupy our minds. So as this society continues to congratulate itself um, and shout out to the governor of Florida, the white nationalist governor of Florida, who will be running for president if his master Donald Trump doesn't run, and maybe even if he does, and his clan adjacent friends. And when I say clan adjacent, for those of you who, for whom that might bristle, I would say good. It should make you uncomfortable. As James Baldwin said, from birth to death is something very personal about being black in America. So if you don't feel comfortable with that good, you should be uncomfortable. In fact, my question is, why aren't you uncomfortable every day with the state of the world, with the state of this country called the United States of America, which isn't a nation? But you know, the clan adjacent governor of Cali, and I'm going to say clan adjacent, what I mean is you're not a member of the Ku Klux Klan. There's no evidence that you're a member of the Ku Klux Klan. The Ku Klux Klan is kind of dried up anyway. Footnote, those of you who are clan members who hate watch this, persist. I'm sure your blood pressure is going up. No problem. Uh, happy anniversary, by the way, if you celebrate the birth rebirth of the Ku Klux Klan, because that happened on Thanksgiving night, 1915, on top of Stone Mountain, Georgia, when William Simmons and his boys got together. They had a Bible. They had a a saber from the confederate army they had the constitution of the united states and the declaration of independence and they don't see any contradiction between having those elements and when they lit that fiery cross on thanksgiving night 1915 on top of stone mountain georgia to signal the rebirth of the so-called modern ku klux klan they had in mind that their descendants their intellectual and cultural descendants like the richard spencers of the world would be in a place like charlottesville well, they would have thought they would have won by now, I'm sure. But uh, 102 years later, saying Jews will not replace us and all that other hate and vitriol that vitriol that they spewed. Um, they knew that the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871 had shut down a lot of the Klan, but not killed it. They couldn't have foreseen the armies of African people who marched out of the South and marched across this country and marched. I don't mean just marching in protest. I'm talking about lawyers and, and organizers and people for everybody from Mary McLeod Bethune and Pauli Murray to, uh, to to Constance Baker Motley and Martin Luther King and Stokely Carmichael and, and Dory Ladner and all. They, they couldn't have imagined so that, you know, between 1915 and 2017 and now 2021 when a jury, which was composed mostly of white people, said the Ku Klux Klan of eight, Act of 1871 is still good law and y'all gonna pay 
you know, they couldn't have predicted that, but that's, you know, y'all just passed your anniversary of the rebirth of Thanksgiving night. But the maturity allows us to listen to our ancestors and to remember that not only have we always resisted in terms of the social structure, we have always built, we've always made place in the governance structure. So Nubians and everybody listening who is joining Nubia, who's bringing your brick, you know what your brick is? Your brick is yourself and your memory. Your brick is, is the mature remembering of what it means to be human in the world. You know, I've been reading and rereading, and I said this before, I've said this many times since this book came out, and this is one of the books that we will dig deeper in as we continue to build Nubia, this uh, Hampate Ba, um, Amukulel, the Fula boy. You know, I, I was rereading a piece in there where um, where Hampate Ba, this great um, repository, this doma, y'all go back. I mean, in fact, Professor, I think about that. The conversations we've had, the ones that we are converting and that will be, you know, in, in other formats as we move forward for people to sit with and think through. We've done so much foundation laying by listening to ancestors, listening to people who thought about this, like Hampate Ba, that whole conversation we had about why we shouldn't be saying griot, why jolly is a much better term in terms of blood and why the doma within that is the highest standard. You know, Bob was a doma and he talks about, you know, memory and keeping memory and what it means to have mouth to ear memory. Well, every brick you bring to build is, is composed of yourself and your ancestors and the vision that that type of conversation has. So I said all that to say that placemaking is what we're doing. And those governance formations are there if we will listen to them. We're not starting from scratch. Our ancestors built and then gave us the baton. And immaturity comes when you think you're starting a race from the starting line. That is the most immature thing we can do. And that's what allows you to then become a figment of other people's imagination. Can we sit there for one second? Please, let's do it. Because, you know, the other thing I want to remind Nubians and everybody when we start to talk about ourselves in juxtaposition of others we've lost, our memory should go back thousands and thousands and thousands of years. That's what we're reclaiming. So to have a conversation about what we should do, I was picking up um, a Black Enterprise, uh, Earl Gray's book. Uh, it was recommended to me and I'm reading it, you know, and even, you know, why should white guys have all the fun? His book is, you know, how we can, you know, uh, be as successful as white people. Every iteration of, of books that we read that instructs us to how to navigate and survive whiteness, uh, you know, anti-whiteness, anti all, all of these books, no. anti-racism. And we are still starting from a losing position that we weren't here thousands of years with thousands of years of memory and all of the things like you just talked about, that little farming thing. Yes. Not only have you stolen us to do things, but you didn't even listen to the people that came before you to do it better. That's right. Your way sucks. Our <laughs> way has always been the foundation. Yes. So I need us to, you know, and I myself included, you know, when I start saying white anything, I have to stop myself. No conversation start with white anything. Right. Start right. with us. We have to right. always be the entry point to the ways in which we read, think, talk to one another commune with one another. It shouldn't be in juxtaposition of how, whatever they're doing. Now, right. we have to, as you mentioned, be in the governance structure. You know, some of us get, get hemmed up with the justice system. Some of us, you know, are watching these cases play out and we're at the center of the harm, of being yes. harmed. 
Yes. So, but yes. but that's the cancer eating this country alive from the inside. That's right. But it still has nothing to do with how we build and how we deal and how we communicate and commune with one another. That's and right. so I just want to thank you for that point of reference because when mm-hmm. you said it, it was like light bulb moment. No more white talk and race out it. Whatever y'all do, do whatever you do. We are focused on remembering and then moving forward to build the next thing because I don't know what the future is going to bring for them. None of us do. Oh, we're, we're all together. This is the thing. Dr. King was right. We are in an inescapable garment, an inescapable fabric of interconnectivity. We are woven together. We're human beings. There's one race. Jane Elliott knows it. There's one race. In fact, we could almost abandon race. We are the species, homo sapiens. Let's even take away that, that Western label coming out of the Latin. We are beings. We are We are woven together. So, no, I don't look to white people, but not looking to white people should eventually lead to not labeling ourselves black. Blackness is a creation of whiteness. Race becomes this problem. But here's the problem. The social structure we live in makes these imaginary categories, it hardens them into real real categories that have implications. So as long as there is white, I am going to be black. And part of that is going to be because whiteness needs blackness to exist. And part of that means that blackness needs itself in order to resist whiteness. This is the binary challenge. And this is this is in many ways a trap. But however, what I'm not going to do is sacrifice myself to whiteness. So I'm going to make black and this isn't a blackness is in many ways a reaction to, to, to whiteness. But here's where the challenge comes in. Because Africa, too, is a label. What are the ways of knowing? that human beings have created since we've been on this planet that enable us to live more fully, that enable us to know and to learn and to create and to grow and to thrive. And every group of humans on the planet contributes to that ongoing work. Things that we say, that if we had all the, hum- if all the humans in the world were in this room and somebody said, what about this? And the rest of us said, no, man, it don't work. And then somebody said, well, no, it might work for me. Why? Because where I live is a lot colder than where you live. So that's why I said that. Okay, well. So then we all meet and we say, okay, here's what we here's what we propose. We propose that you leave where you live and come move down here with us. And you can still do, or if you're going to stay up there, we need to come up with a better technology for y'all to stay warm. Because clearly this is affecting your ability to share. You up there hoarding food because you ain't got no food. Now, can we send them some food? Maybe they should just leave that ice. Should they just leave? Why do we walk? We, why do we walk up there in the first place? Does anybody remember? But was there a beef or something? No, but we we don't we haven't shrunken our storehouse of knowledge to the place where we can have conversations like this. What we really have, and this is where I really want to, mm, 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 Professor Hunter, mm, maturity for us means that we have to hold many things in our head at the same time. And when I think about, particular, and there, there are people now in Nubia from all over the world, so please forgive these very US-specific examples. You take somebody like this young brother, Ahmad, Ahmad Marquez Arbery, known to his family as Maud, uh, you know, um, he, Aquez, his nickname, you heard his father refer to him that a couple of times in the last couple of weeks. You know, you're looking at a man who's only 25 years old. He's a young man. You know, listening to his mother, Wanda Cooper Jones, listening to his father, Marcus Arbery Sr., you know, this he said, you killed a baby. That's what he said. I mean, we talked about that last week. But he wasn't a literal baby, but he's 25 years. He's always going to be a baby. To, I'm a baby to my mom. You know what I'm saying? Always going to be. When I see my mama came in Tuesday, she said, you know, 
Here, this is my baby. Why? Because there was a time when it was me, her, and my daddy. It was the three of us. <laughs> you know, that was the, that was the running joke that my father made transition. I come, I call him on birthday and say, Yeah, man, I remember when it was just the three of us. <laughs> we started laughing, right? But the point is that you know, that young brother worked. He sometimes he worked landscaping. His daddy had a landscaping company, he worked for a truck washing company. You know, he's lifting weights. He wanted to be a football player when he was in high school, go to the league like everybody else, these young cats. You know, we got to expand the horizon of our young people, Brunswick High School. Uh, he, he went to Southern Georgia, uh, South Georgia Tech. You know, he's thinking, well, maybe one day I'll, you know, I'll get into a field where I can use these skills that I'm developing there. He had to drop out, didn't have the money. And yeah, he had some brushes with the law. A lot of people did. Right. I tell students all the time, high school students, is that the car? You know, how do you get where you're getting? And say, you know, you surround yourself with community, you listen, you try to do what you can, you learn, you keep yourself open, and you find people who will help you, and you never forget to help other people. How many of you all uh, ever were in, in school suspension? You see all the hands go up. Now, so I put my hand up too. I see, I too am a graduate of in school suspension. <laughs> so, <laughs> exactly. We talked about that, right? I mean, you know, we, some of us took it as a badge of honor at the time. Now, looking back, that was a knucklehead thing, but depending on who you got for ISS, this is why I love Nubia and even YouTube. Y'all putting in the chat as we bring in our bricks, the things we're talking about, so many people know. It's your memory too. Who was that teacher who was assigned in school suspension in your school but took the job because they knew these are the young people, as my man Asa here used to say, whose spirit you haven't broken yet. And while they when they go in that room, y'all don't care. Social structure, what happens to them? I, however, do. I'll take the assignment. You don't even like me, but I'm going in here and when that door closes, we're going to have a different kind of conversation. Yeah, there are countless people. There are people in this room right now whose lives were forever altered for the better by those people who intervene in those spaces where the social structure says, this is where we throw these people who we don't care about. Amal Aubrey had a family who loved him, siblings who loved him, parents who loved him, a community that he was a part of. And yes, he shows up one day in 2013 at his old high school. And they say he got a pistol in his waistband. Get five years probation. What would you doing with a pistol? This is not uncommon, nor is it common. It just is. You see that from time to time. Four years later, four years later, they say they say he was attempted shoplifting, stealing something in Walmart. Well, hell, the statute of limitation to run out on all the stuff we did. <laughs> we was, I mean, you know, that still don't mean that we're gonna talk about it in open. But we, in fact, every time when you go home. All of y'all know what I'm talking about. When you go sit around with people who you came up with, as uh, as my dear friend and elder, the great Eleanor Trailer often says uh, about her and Toni Morrison when they were at Howard University and they were at the beginning of their career teaching freshman comp, we were girls together. If you were girls together with somebody or boys together with somebody, there are things that happened. There's a bike shop in my old neighborhood now. And we'll talk about that in a minute in terms of gentrification, this question of colonization, because this, this is all part of the same conversation. And laughing about it the other night, I'm sitting with my, you know, my brother, my brother-in-law, my, bro my brother's best friend. We sitting around, all of their kids are running around. My mama's over there in the corner. These Negroes ate more food than should be allowed. And, you know, marking the holiday that uh, is the easy transition from colonization and consumption to the next major holiday, which is the holiday for capitalism. Um, and the days in between. Um, but sitting there, and we started talking about all the things that were crimes at the time that are still crimes. 
And, you know, we talked about, you know, getting on the bus in Nashville and riding out as far as we could go and then keep and then walk out as far as we could in the suburbs and coming back with several bikes at a time. You know, they'll, they'll buy new bikes. Those people have bikes. Now, the statute of limitations has run on that. But the point is that, you know, Amar Aubrey, so they, they, they say a little petty crime, shoplifting in Walmart. Okay, then they extend his probation. And so that paper was still on him, lightweight paper, but paper nonetheless, on him when these white men took his life. But the criminalization that they wanted to introduce at trial, this is about criminalizing as, as the great ancestor, my friend and elder now ancestor, Charcy McIntyre wrote. I mean, hey, the new Jim Crow is a great book. It's got some interesting stuff, but it ain't the first time black women have written about the, uh, the law used to criminalize black people. Charcy McIntyre, get her book, Criminalizing a Race, uh, a, 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 a remarkable text. But you know, black people get criminalized. So in maturity, to be mature means we cannot look to that system that has a own, its own shrunken worldview to define who we are. We have to remember who we are by focusing on who we have always known ourselves to be and receive what the ancient Egyptians would call that sebaite, those lessons from the past. Now, now what does that mean in, 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 in very real and material terms? Well, that means we have to reject, first step, we have to reject looking at ourselves through lenses that other people crafted for their purposes. That's why we had to create a social structure category. In a pure Africana studies approach, we wouldn't need a social structure category because we would know that. But if you start your self-image, your self-concept with somebody else's idea of who you are, particularly in a system that has you at the bottom of a racial hierarchy or an oppressive hierarchy of any time, then it's very difficult, if not impossible, to fight your way out. I mean, with all due respect, again, I'm thinking about this children's book that just came out, my friend, Nicole Hannah-Jones, you know, the 1619 Project. They've got a book now. It's listed for all the book awards. And that's wonderful. It's called Born on the Water. We were not born on the water. <laughs> we're not born on the water. Come on now. you got to do better than that or not. Governance formations must create natural placemaking. And the question I always raise when I see things like that, and then I see the award system kick in, because it does kick in. Why? Because those are the images of black people that the social structure likes. And you know how they like you know how you do you know how we know they like it? And I'm talking about the corporate corporations, I'm talking about the, the educational institutions, I'm talking about the mass commercial media. Because they select those things and try to curate them and push them on black people. So, you know, my question is always, what do you want from that social structure? What are you after with that other? What do you want from it? You want recognition? The awards? The art culture complexes, Clyde Taylor Cut? Do you want acceptance? That's a byproduct of trauma, wanting acceptance for most people. In fact, my brother-in-law, I love, you know, I love my whole family. You know, I, this brother, I have so much respect for him, Randy Fuller. Um, who was a godson and very close to Joe Gillum Sr. We talked about a couple of weeks ago in, in, in office hours, and we, I mentioned it last week, uh, the great Eldridge Dickey, uh, quarterback of Tennessee State, Tennessee A&I, then became Tennessee State, uh, the Black National co College National Champions for a couple of years in a row, undefeated uh, Eldridge Dickey. And, and I really want to spend some time on Eldridge Dickey uh, another time. He, he made it only to 54 years old. Um, he... he was drafted by the Oakland Raiders first round, first black quarterback taken in the first round of the NFL draft. And Hank Schramm of the uh, Kansas City Chiefs wanted Dickey because he was going to install Dickey as quarterback. 
Washington Post did a whole feature on him a couple of weeks ago. And I'm going to, um, no, I'm not. Give me, give me 10 seconds. Cause I need to go get it because I brought, I brought all these copies of the Washington Post so that I could take them, take one home and give it to my people because Elders Dickey was known as the Lord's Prayer, a phenom out of Texas who could throw with left hand and right hand. It's the Washington Post from November the 14th. We all thought he would be the one. This is a social structure piece right here. That's Elders Dickey. Front page above the fold, then takes up the two whole pages of print. There he is with John Madden. Here he is holding for George Blander, the kicker. Here he is as a high school prodigy left and right hand but you know what you don't see in this social structure newspaper you don't see here's dwight lewis my friend dwight lewis and susan thomas's book a will to win tennessee state university arguably the greatest college uh athletic program that most people have not don't even know the history of tennessee state university and that's fine because again nubia actually they're doing a re they're redoing this uh some of y'all have heard of some of these people Actually, my niece Eden is a track star, and she was sitting with Barbara Curry Merle, who was um, roommates with Wilma Rudolph. And y'all have all heard of the Tiger Bells, the Tennessee State Tiger Bells. Mm -hmm. You know, so I mean, we'll we talk about that another day. I'm just seeing if I could find a quick picture of something you did not see. Oh, yeah, here's the most famous, probably, athlete from Tennessee State. That's Wilma Rudolph. Uh, he's here with her mom and daddy out of Tennessee. There she is winning that gold medal, one of the gold medals in 1960 in the Rome Olympics. Uh, the United States track team who won the gold medals, those women, whereas here she is as an older sister. There she is showing her pedestal coach, Ed Temple. I knew Coach Temple well. Um, they were um, the team that won the gold medal in Rome 1960 was four women, all of whom were from Tennessee State University. But wow. the whole point is that here we go. Here's a picture you didn't see. Elders Dickey was a quarterback. Couldn't you find one picture in this tribute to Elders Dickey with him with the ball in his hand, since that's what he was drafted to do? But Shram and them boys believe Al Davis, clan adjacent, just win, baby. You didn't want to just win because Shram and them was like, you drafted Elders Dickey to keep him away from us. The tragedy of Elders Dickey in the social structure is something that can hardly be understated. This was... Uh, a brother who came out of Kentucky State University, came down to coach Tennessee State. That is the great Joe Gillum Sr., another name everyone should know. Joe Gillum Sr. had a son who was a little boy on campus who loved Eldridge Dickey so much that he wanted to wear his number. But since 10 was taken, he took 12. That was a young brother by the name of Joey Gillum Jr. He grew up to become Jefferson Street Joe Gillum. He played quarterback for the Pittsburgh Steelers and just like Marvin Briscoe, just like <laughs> Marvin Briscoe was playing uh, James, James Shaq Harris, who uh, these are names, you know, of course, Professor Hunter. Uh, James Harris was playing for Grambling. And anyway, I don't even get too deep in it. There's all kinds of stories I can tell. But anyway, my brother-in-law played in the NFL for half dozen seasons, went to the Super Bowl, uh, Atlanta Falcons, Pittsburgh Steelers, you know, um, and CLC uh, Hawks played for several teams. But he was, he was very close to Coach Gillum, Joe Gillum, senior. And sitting there talking about Dickey opened up into a conversation about the values that my brother-in-law learned from those men. And my nephew was overseas. He's playing soccer now. He's, at a, he's in a professional team in Spain. 20 years old, deferred college, you know, for a couple of years. He's coming back. 
you know, I'd love to have him with me at Howard, but you know, I got to make sure you understand, <laughs> you understand, because at this point, HBCUs are so important, but in terms of their grounding, if you're going to be a figment of the white imagination, then you're really not that different from HWCUs in terms of your concepts. We have to be this. This. This is a. This is full spectrum. One of the reasons we're building this place out is to destroy the idea that learning should be anchored at the universities. When I say jailbreak, jailbreak the black university, I'm meaning restore our concept of education to what it was when Hampate Ba and them came through pre-European notion. It's the, the, the heights of learning are not achieved at the university. The heights of learning are achieved at your house and in your community and in that unbroken genealogy. The brick you bring is the brick of yourself, which means of your memory. But sitting there listening to Randy talk and we sitting there having conversations talk. And you know, my brother-in-law was good. I mean, my brother-in-law could have gone anywhere and he said, you know, I, I went to the visits. I went to all of the schools, the major schools. He said, but they didn't speak to me. Randy said, I went to Tennessee State. I came up there and I said, you know what? This is where I'm going to school. He said, and I've never regretted because a lot of my, my, my teammates, a lot of people I've met over the years who went to HBCUs, and everybody couldn't play for Coach Gillum. Man, Randy started telling them stories about the discipline that was required. And I, I remember Ed Temple telling these stories. I was, I, was, I was alive. I was a student when Ed Temple and his wife were still on campus. So Ed Temple would start his track practices first thing in the morning. Think about John Cheney. Think about Vivian Stringer when they were at Cheney State University. Before Vivian Stringer is at Rutgers in Iowa. Before John Cheney's at Temple. Them break of dawn uh, uh, practices. Ed Temple did the same thing with the Tiger Bells. And in fact, the name of his memoir was Only the Pure in Heart. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Only want to pure in heart. Randy said, you know, you would have white schools camping out trying to get the second and third string quarterbacks from Tennessee State who simply left Tennessee State and transferred because they couldn't take the practice. They were first round draft picks. This cats who spent years in the NFL who left Tennessee State because they couldn't take the practices. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so uh, you know, Randy's in there talking about Coach Gillum, who I knew, but you know, Gillum, man, mm, he and Randy were very, very, Randy was a son to Coach Gillum and his wife. But in, in listening to Randy talk about what it meant to and means to be at a black school as an athlete, he said, these are where the lifelong friendships are formed. This is where you learn the values or have the values you brought with you reinforced. He said, so many of my teammates, so many of the people I know, black athletes, you know, he's now, he ran in his early 50s now. He says, you know, cats I played with, cats I played against, names everybody knows, and I ain't gonna repeat none of them names. Says, you know, who went to black colleges and made it to the NFL, made it to the NBA, went some of these places. He says, now what I realize is for some of them, they did it coming through the black schools. They are grateful for those black schools, but in their heart of hearts, they wanted the white school because some of them weren't like I was. I could have gone, but I didn't want to go. It didn't speak to me. Some of them wanted to go or they got overlooked. They got hurt, whatever. And now what I'm seeing is, this is what blew my mind, bro. He said, I'm seeing it come out as they try to live through their sons. Their sons now will go to Alabama or Notre Dame. Their sons will go to Clemson. Their son, now, now, my nephew, and Randy said this, and I said, you know what I love about you, brother, among many, many other things, you and my sister Gussie, what I love about y'all is 
you know, you have children who are star athletes and intellectuals. It couldn't be no different in my family. You know what I'm saying? My, you, y'all going to sit up under me. We're going to have a different kind. You know what I'm saying? But that wasn't it. They didn't need me around. It was just that value. We got that from our parents. They got that from their parents. This, this is what I'm talking about in terms of placemaking, bringing your brick. You're not looking outside of your community for these values. They are in. They just look around. Sit your children with your people. And as you all are hearing this, if you're in the chat, if you are in, you know, putting it in in YouTube, if you're putting it in in Nubia now, then, you know, Put in some of the names of the people who formed you because what my brother-in-law said, finally, I said this. He said, you know, my son was like, why would I go help a white school win a national soccer championship? This is a child. (laughs) See, maturity often has nothing to do with age. Some things, yes, it has to do with age. In other words, your frontal lobe hadn't completely formed. Things are going on. I was reading on the plane. Uh, this thing that happened, Dave Chappelle was here in D.C., apparently went to his old high school, Duke Ellington, gets into a back and forth argument with a bunch of teenagers. The first thing hit my mind is, why are you arguing with teenagers? <laughs> now, I'm not, I, I'm not talking about the substance of it. I'm not talking about the critique. I'm not, The first thing in my mind is, this is not a teacher. Now, your mother's a master teacher. I'm saying, what do you know about? That person's 16 years old. They have values. They have rights. They have uh, uh, the, 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 they have not only the, um, the right, but the responsibility to speak. And you have the right and the responsibility to listen. It should be a conversation. But at the same time, they're 16. So there's an element of that. But then there's also maturity that comes from having young people around intergenerational conversations where you ain't beating them in the head with do this, do this, do this. They see it. My nephew's like, why would I go help Duke or Clemson or North Carolina win a national soccer championship? Come on, huh? What are they doing at Howard? They got a soccer team, don't they? Yeah. Well, well I'm going to go overseas, see what it is, and then when I come back, maybe I'll, uh, it's all right. In other words, that's not something you have to tell anyone who is grounded in their community. And I'm not saying that people shouldn't go to white schools. Am I? So but the <laughs> I'm not saying that because people say we fought to get in those schools. No, what you fought was for resources and to be treated as a human being. You did not fight as Martin Luther King told the Georgia Teachers and Education Association in Vanessa Walker's book, The Lost Education of Horace Tate, Horace Tate begins. I think it's 1967. Dr. King stands up and says to them, you know, we're not fighting to create a system that destroys everything good we built. That's the part of King that doesn't fit with being a figment of the white imagination. And so anyway, let me let me get too, get too deep in it. I just want to make that point in terms of that. But placemaking, governance found, uh, formations, means you're not looking for recognition that comes at the expense of your humanity. You're not looking for acceptance that is grounded in your trauma. And now you have fallen in love with the thing that has assaulted your people for centuries. It's not even looking for retribution. It's not even looking for retribution. It is looking for repair, but not from the social structures. This is what people don't understand about reparations. Reparations isn't about uh, equity. Represent isn't about representation. Reparations is about repair and whatever strategies lead to repair. And here's one of the key things. This is where I want to kind of go, go with this morning just for a few minutes. Because again, framed by our Africana Studies framework is that seventh overarching thrust that comes out of Sonia Sanchez that you, Professor Hunter, had the wisdom to say, let us elevate this question as the as the pass-through question. Uh-huh. 
but how do it free us? <laughs> this is this is the question. And this is how it frees us. It has to be a concept of self that doesn't begin with birth, that doesn't end with death. My mother sitting there, we all sitting around talking, and out of somewhere in her inner ear and memory, she says, remember to my brother and sister-in-law and my nieces and nephews, remember when Kai and Kamario were little and they had that pageant out there in uh, Nonesville Road, and, and this after it was over, we were ending the end, everybody clapping for the children, and then this old man stood up from the amen corner. Oh, here we go. See, my mom started talking like that. She's in Nashville physically with that memory, but she's really in Alabama. <laughs> you understand? She's she's back as a little girl, the youngest of her family. They called her Bebe. You know, black people got all them nicknames. Y'all gonna put some nicknames in the chat because we're building in our bricks, right? She said that old man stood up. And it's funny because for, for elder people of African descent, there's always somebody who they will call an old person <laughs> even around. You know, this old man. And he started singing, a charge to keep a hand. Then you heard them people out there, woo, woo. They started standing up like popcorn, popping up like popcorn. You know, elders be telling stories. Charge to keep a hand. Lord, God to glorify. Mm -hmm. She's singing that by herself. Then we all start singing. Because this is about the long meter hymn. Even the children. Why? Because you don't need to know. If y'all if y'all want to see a master at that, go on YouTube and find Jeremiah Wright. Walk y'all through how to compose a sermon, the various ways to do it. What he learned coming up and down the road from Virginia to Philadelphia with one of his jegnas, the great Samuel DeWitt Proctor, who would come to Philly to preach and be like, Jeremiah, you want to ride? I know you ain't washed no clothes. Put your dirty clothes in the car. Come on, let's go. And then, because he, he was in Virginia Union as a child, and he said on all the way up there for hours, he would quiz him on Bible verses. What's your thesis? What's the antithesis? What's the message? Luke chapter 10. You just take it back. So you got you got to hear Jeremiah Wright. You got to hear Arjegna, my my mm, dear elder Jeremiah Wright, walk you through this. But that long meter hymns, because you know Jeremiah Wright, even now. Now he had a stroke. He his mind is as quick as ever. His his message, his his, his but when Jeremiah Wright, y'all can find him when he's singing. That's a whole nother level. So at any rate. He would tell those stories, but them long meter hymns, you ain't got to know the long meter hymn. All you got to do is listen. When you see them elders stand up, say, a charge to keep our head. You, oh, here we go. A charge, a charge to keep our head. So you lead out with that, and then you say it again, but now everybody know the line. A charge. To keep you ain't got to hit the note perfectly. Why? Because everybody's singing. But the whole point is everybody must sing. That's where you put the values. And I'm 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 in this. I'm here listening to my mother. And I'm also looking and I'm realizing when we are all ancestors, that little one over there will remember this. This is that's how you build maturity, but you contrast that. That's the ways of knowing, by the way. That's that third category. Contrast that with this. Because there are those who tell you you can't go home again. Now, some of y'all probably have heard of the author Thomas Wolfe. You know, 
look southward angel where a nice little clan i don't even call him clan adjacent because he used the n-word sprinkled through all his novels so i might even call him anyway i'm not even gonna get into that if you ever seen uh uh or read the book genius editor of genius or seen the movie genius with uh what's the guy's name jude law in it there was a guy named maxwell what was his last name one more time oh no no is, is the actor no this guy is the editor He's an okay. editor. He wrote his wrote his memoir because he edited F. Scott Fitzgerald. He edited uh, Thomas Wolfe. Look, I'm a fan of writing, duh, but I am not a fan of the idea that writers, professors, academics, any form of intellectual workers who are recognized by the social structure as that is the way you get to intellectual work somehow supersede the intelligence, the wisdom, the ways of knowing of the vast majority of humanity. That's how you curate a system that is doomed to fail because you have people begin to rank their intelligence based on who has been identified as the spokesperson. But in this case, somebody like Thomas Wolfe, you know, uh, you can't you can't go home again was the name of one of his novels. And, and, and he writes Maxwell Perkins. Maxwell Perkins, editor of Genius. That's right. That's the, that's his memoir. All the people he edited, right? If you see the movie, uh, uh, maybe called just Genius, Maxwell Perkins. It's actually very interesting. Again, social structure. See, I enjoy movies that are written and, and produced and created about social structure figures because I'm not looking for myself in them. <laughs> you understand, people? There, there's a universality of humanity that you can approach, but you approach it from your particular grounding. That was Du Bois's message before he got out of his 20s when he when he gave the talk to conservation of races here in D.C., the American Negro Academy. Story for another day. Thomas Wolfe writes in um, You Can't Go Home Again. This is a worldview. He says there came to him an image of man, an image of man's whole life upon the earth. It seemed to him that all man's life was like a tiny spurt of flame that blazed out briefly in illimitable and terrifying darkness. That all man's grandeur, all man's tragic dignity, his heroic glory came from the brevity and smallness of this flame. He knew his life was little and, and would be extinguished, and that only darkness was immense and everlasting, and he knew that he would die with defiance on his lips, and that the shout of his denial would ring with the last pulsing of his heart into the mouth of all engulfing night. Such beautiful writing such a terrible worldview this is the collision of intellect shoehorned in such a tiny way of knowing that it becomes almost like drinking poison so that way of knowing that doesn't begin with your birth and doesn't end with your death allows you to link to ancestors the way of knowing that says your life is like a flame and now it's dark again well, that's everything from, uh, remember uh, Rodney Dangerfield back to school, the Jay Thornton Mellon, he was trying to get out of school and they gave him the quiz at the end of the movie. He's got to do everything orally and his little girlfriend that he done fell in love with who was on the faculty, she's up there hugging him and she says, just relax. Remember Tennyson. Do not go gently into that good, that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. She said, what does that mean to you? Said, that means I ain't going to take S from nobody. Okay, there you go, your worldview. The individual, the night is to be feared. The night is to be, no, 
The Egyptians said everything comes out of the darkness, returns to the darkness. In fact, we never leave the noon. Everything that was always is, we we persevere. Now, some people, you say, oh, I like that other worldview where I'm born, I die in between and nothing else here. And so you end up like Dr. Strange in that episode of What If, where you just basically in a little microverse and everything around you, darkness, you destroyed everything. This is worldview stuff, but it also allows for the type of destruction the type of destruction that creates societies that are hell bent on, well, while I'm here, I'm going to use it all up. I'm going to do whatever I do. And I saw it at home. I saw it in Nashville these last few days. And you see it all over the country. You see it all over the United States. You see it all over the world. Placemaking for African people isn't always physical. One of the things that John Merritt, who uh, Joe Gillum was on his staff at Tennessee State, the football coach would say, and Eddie Robinson at Grambling and some of these other uh, coaches would say, is that whatever we have in this stadium, whatever we have in these, in these buildings, that isn't the place you look to for who we are. You look at the relationships. You look at, so people say, oh, I like this school because of the weight room. I like this room. Okay. But what about this school for the relationships, for the people, for the people who will, who your parents feel comfortable, your community feels comfortable. And if you were telling the truth, you would feel comfortable with, okay, when integration comes, we want them fast ball players. Then they get the ball players there. And next thing you know, they're getting in trouble. Why the social structure don't want them to do anything but run. So then what do you start doing? You pick a couple of Negro father figures and sprinkle them down. Now, they can't be the head coach or the assistant head coach. They may be the receivers coach. They may be the, but you just need a couple of Negroes so that when them boys start getting ruly, St. Charles over there to talk to them. Do you get a little recruiting coach? You mean, you you know, a guy like Steve Fisher at the University of Michigan when I was in grad school when Chris Weber and all them boys was at Michigan. Yeah, yeah. Steve, the, 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 the coach, no, he just sitting there with his finger in his, he's like that guy that was in Illinois when I was in undergrad with, uh, with uh, I'm in grad school when uh, Marcus Liberty and them boys, Nick Anderson and all them Chicago went down there to the University of Illinois and their coach sitting there with his finger in his mouth. Whatever. You just rolled the damn basketball out there. Now I'm looking for the assistant coach, the guy who's recruiting or the who is the real guy they talk to because you got them down here in illinois you got them in ann arbor and you just want them to dribble the ball but my point is that or you could just go to an hbcu where you're surrounded by that you can still get to the league but the social structure requires that because they're just trying to use you up and go on that's what they do so anyway so you know thinking about thomas wolf thinking about that worldview understanding that worldview is at the heart of many of the ways that societies that chew people up and spit them out, move, it explains the dilemma we're in in this world right now. Because that worldview, because of the through force of violence and settler colonialism, through the force of reinforcing the violence of making people or trying to make people forget their contributions to the human family, their threads in the inescapable fabric of a, a, a garment of destiny, by doing that, you are now putting, you're threatening the entire species. And so, you know, that's why I want to kind of end just in terms of these opening remarks today, in terms of what I saw and what we'll really be talking about Monday, I think, because I'm still processing. It's very painful. It's very painful. It's very painful to, you know, and this is why people quote, use that quote from Thomas Wolfe, you can't go home again. Because, you know, the, th the theory that Wolf develops and the theory that comes out of that, when people say that, what they mean is wherever you are from, wherever you were born, wherever you were raised, when you go back to it, that place is no longer there. 
And in many ways, that's true. And so the, the idea is that life goes on, life continues, but that is a very Western concept. And it's also a very literal concept. The physical place may or may not be there. Parenthetically, if that were true, then why do you use so much of my damn tax money propping up these cobblestones in Philadelphia and Boston or throwing circles of protection around, you know, flagpoles and statues because you understand that that's only true for people who don't get material placemaking that conforms with your view of the world. This is the battle. I think about Brent Legs, some of these cats at the Historic Preservation Trust who have done a lot of work around this. The fight over monuments isn't just the fight over material reality. It's the fight over who gets to remember and who is forced to forget. This is the thing. So walking through the airport, seeing that damn poster about Middle Tennessee State University, an open lie, that's from a culture that is saying, we will just wait you out. You understand? And then we will come back with the same damn lie. You know what I'm saying? Because what you don't seem to understand is that our whole identity is based on you not being fully human. And sometimes when you fight your way into an awareness of yourself, we just have to wait you out. The fact that so many people right now never heard the name Eldridge Dickey. You should ask yourself, but you're going to turn on this football this weekend. You ready to punch somebody in the face between Ohio State and Michigan. I went to Ohio State. I don't give a damn if the Ohio State University wins another athletic contest in anything it's in for the rest of its existence. When I was at Ohio State, when I was teaching at Ohio State finishing grad school, I had a lot of those ball players as my students. The great James Otis Scotty Graham, now assistant AD at Arizona State University. That's my friend. Scotty went back and got a master's degree in black studies at Ohio State because a lot of those young brothers understood, sisters too, track, basketball, that I'm on scholarship. They really don't want me to uh, be in the classroom. But as I become aware, particularly with these black studies classes and at the Black Culture Center, which is the place-making place we had at Ohio State, shout out my man Larry Williamson, who's still there. They began to understand, well, since they're paying for school, I'm going to school too. So you have cats now. If you're going to go to a white school, if you're an athlete at a white school, y'all listen now. If you're a young person who want to go play basketball for this place or football for this place because you saw it on TV and can't nobody tell you any different, fine, go. But damn it, go to class. They're paying. In fact, they're not paying. You're paying. Why? You're a revenue-generating black. Student athlete. No, 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 no. Let's just call them what they are. R-G-B, <laughs> revenue generating black. <laughs> That's what you are. Get some of that revenue back and go to your classes. You can come out with a master's degree or more. There are graduate students now going to be playing in these bowl games, sugar versus cotton. Or, no, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that. Uh, I mean, Florida State versus Alabama. So I guess I should use the names of the schools rather than the names of the commodities that the children who are running ancestors got here in the first place to do. Uh, but at any rate, tobacco versus sugar, you know that kind of thing. But they used to, at least they used to be a lot more honest before corporate America started using uh, getting licensure rights. They used, to, they used to call them the commodity bowls, the sugar bowl, the cotton bowl. And that's a little bit better. I say. You know, let's just call it what it is. But anyway, the point is that when you start thinking about placemaking in these places, who gets to make place is really determined by who remembers and who continues to keep the memory alive. So as I was, you know, I was home. I'd come out, get off the plane. I'm walking through an airport I don't recognize because everybody's moving to Nashville now. It's hot. All these people are not, you know. I, and I do this when I travel, and you know, I ain't been traveling. I mean, COVID, <laughs> let's just be clear. 
I come out of, as Holly said, this COVID tube. I take off one of the masks. And I didn't call anybody. I don't call people typically at first. You know, I wait till I get where I'm going. I'm going, I'm going to my house. So to get there though, this is the South. So you know, ain't no trains. If you ain't in Atlanta, would have been no, like it's the bus or Uber. I'm not Ubering. I'm not getting no share. Ride. I'm gonna get on the bus. I go on bus everywhere. First time I went to Paris, I got on the bus. England, same thing. Where y'all at? No, don't worry. Just tell me where to be and what time. Well, what's things like? No, no. Just tell me where to be and what time. Then how did you get here? I got here the same way working class people got here. They got stuff with wheels on it that you get on and off. I'm not dumb. I know enough French to know how to read enough to get here. And I know, okay, let me get, I got enough francs and I convert them. Let me stick this in here, get this token or whatever. All right, I'm on the train. I, I can see a map. I know where I'm supposed to go. Anyway, so, you know, not just there. Egypt, you name it, South Africa. My God. I apologize to every student that I did. Williams, myself, Dana Williams, that took, took the South Africa them early years who got in the back. Oh, <laughs> in fact, that was our running joke, prof. Oh my God. I mean, one time we went, half those kids are college professors now. Josh, Josh Myers. Oh man, I think about them. She goes, yeah, Onyema. Oh my God. She was a politician in Newark, you were up and coming black power politician. I love that brother. All of them, man. Alexandra Mitchell, who's now at the California African-American Museum, finishing her PhD at Cornell. I think they were all like freshmen and sophomores at Howard. And we would get on, you know, you know, they got those just like in Brooklyn somewhere. You they got the van and supposed to be like a 15 passenger van, but it's 30 people in the van. <laughs> and then, you know, you get in the van, the guys driving, you all squeeze, you squeezed up in there. And then they to collect the fare, you just basically pass the money up front and it's coins. Right. It was five Rand, Rhonda Bosch Road. Cape Town, Weinberg, you're going up and down. We squeezed in the back and you just see the fingers with the money going from seat to seat and then it get to the front and the guy got like a little crown roll bag or something <laughs> then the money come in so every we get up in the morning and say where we going today so all right y'all ready y'all got y'all money i got five on it <laughs> five rand <laughs> i got five on it we were, so i apologize to all y'all yeah but y'all made it though this is for the record when we go to africa some of y'all could travel with car i like luxury just letting y'all know I will be Ubering or we'll have a private car. Just let you know. We different. I, I ain't mad. And every once in a while, I done got old now, Professor Hunter. I might have to do that myself because I can't fold up in it the way I did. Although my my role model probably for the rest of my life will be the great James Ashley Donaldson, PhD, University of Illinois in mathematics at age 26, undergraduate Lincoln University from Florida, a little town in Florida, the great James A. Donaldson, who even he was dean of College of Arts and Sciences, the dean that hired me, in fact. I'll, I'll say less on that because I mean there are models for what educators look like. James Donaldson is a model. If you've ever seen what an educator is, you know when you see one, it's not. But the point is that um Donaldson, he was about six four, big dude. We're going to the New York African burial ground one time. Students, we got about six buses. He in the front bus. I'm sitting with Donaldson behind him. He said, Dean, you sit in the front seat. The dean folded himself into that front seat. Yeah, the buses go. Front seat, the driver here, front seat there. He done folded himself up on the window. Now, Miss Kemp, uh, Miss Bush, all the people who work in the dean's office go with us as chaperones. So then, dean, will you please? No, 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 I'm comfortable. Dean Donaldson, no, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. I said, leave him alone. Why? I know what that is. I've seen that before. This isn't psychologically damaged. This isn't, this is a servant. 
He want to make sure all the kids get on, everything's fine. And you want sitting on the no, no, Miss Kemp, you sit here. Well, I want you to be comfortable. But you done folded up. Your knees are in your chest. <laughs> but he would rather do that. He's more com- and so people like that. I understand because those are the people who raised me. So yes, you're right, Professor Hunter. There people. And I, I don't judge anybody on how they want to move through the world. And all I ask is nobody judge me in return. I just said no judgment in the in the chat. I was <laughs> like, you no, say no judgment in the chat. Okay, you do. No judgment. And, and because this, the, we all bring our bricks. And the beautiful right. thing is the bricks fit together. Now we are crowdsourcing. We are crowdsourcing our place. Nubia narrative. This is governance territory, as we said. We are placemaking through organizing knowledge. We are broadening, widening the intellectual genealogy. We are displacing the curated pet shops of clever blacks. What does that mean? In other words, just because you can write, just because you have an insight, and then you're curated out of saying this is the authoritative. No, you know, you know what the authoritative conversation is? The authoritative conversation is a 94-year-old saying, a charge to keep I have, and a six-year-old coming in. Mm-hmm. That's the authoritative. Now, this book about what they doing is interesting. Because it may expose you to some other people who do it that way, and you have an interesting insight. But what it is not, I don't care how many wards it wins, I don't know how many times they try to push it on you, I don't know how many times I go broke trying to buy all the versions of it so I can read for myself and see if there's anything I hadn't thought about, which is all important. But it's not the authoritative version. The authority comes from the people. This is what Kwame Ture will always say. So anyway, so this question then of bringing these bricks is very important. So, as I say, I get there. I get on the bus, the city bus. And it's so funny because I needed to figure out which bus. So I'm, I'm coming down the escalator. I'm looking in there, built a hotel. They got all this stuff up. Cash Vegas. Is this what you call in the place now? I don't recognize the physical place. So I get in the basement and this old white dude sitting there. Now I'm from the South. So I said, so I need, uh, which way to the Metro? Huh? Got to understand what I'm saying. I've been away from living in Nashville since I was 22 years old, since I went off law school. So uh 30 35 years no 34 years 30 yeah 34 years i said uh oh the city bus he's all the city bus yeah go down here (laughs) i had to you know (laughs) wait a minute hold on so i get on the bus as i'm riding i'm seeing the cranes in the sky now i know of course from listening and i've been home before but you know you know intermittently so i know the story but i'm watching how much has changed just in the two and a half years since after before covid Whoa, what's going on, man? This thing. So I get downtown. I see the uh, the old auditorium, municipal auditorium. That's now the the Nashville Music Hall of Fame. They got an African American uh, uh, national African American music hall of fame that was closed. I was gonna go there. I haven't been there yet. I gotta get there. And then I say, you know what? It's a nice day, and I pack light. I got my book bag. I got a little bag. You don't like bringing a whole lot of stuff. So I said, I'm going to walk. Where you going? Well, I'm just going to walk north. I went to the Avon Williams campus of Tennessee State University. Stood in an atrium. Stood in the spot where I got the privilege of being a young man helping Avon Williams cut that ribbon. Avon Williams, who I told on that day, Mr. Williams, your partner, Z. Alexander Luby, rescued the house I was raised in 
from being sold to a white man because the white man is sold to my daddy who worked at the Veterans Administration Hospital, World War II veteran, turned around and a couple of days later sold it to a white man because they, <laughs> and my daddy went and got Mr. Luby because you that's what intellectual warriors do. You, you're a lawyer. I'm sorry, I don't want to step on anybody's toes, but I'm just going to say this once and keep it moving very quickly. If you're a lawyer for black people, this your job. Win. I don't want to hear no more speeches. I don't hear no more protests. You're fisting. That's all great. I mean, you should do that too. But if you're going to be in the genealogy, if you're going to be in the place of a black lawyer, then you better go back and study Constance Baker Motley and Polly Murray. You better go back and study Z. Alexander Luby and Avon Yanga Williams. You understand them people who faced a bar that makes the bar you facing now look like kindergarten. And somehow they win. There was a picture of Avon Williams in the front of Nashville Magazine one time with his arms crossed smiling. And then the caption was like, is this the most hated man in Tennessee? He's, he ate that kind of stuff. Well, what you talking about, man? Avon Williams' uh, house was right around the corner from Anna Bontom's house. So I'm walking. I just ended up walking. I walked past, you know, places. I walked, went over Tennessee State downtown campus. I could have got on the shuttle and went out North Nashville. No, I'm just going to walk down Charlotte because I want to see. I'm looking at these skyscrapers going up everywhere. I'm realizing that many of the places that I knew are no longer there. First Baptist Capitol Hill is still there. Kelly Miller Smith. Y'all go look up Kelly Miller Smith because now you're talking about Jim Lawson, who's still alive. Now you're talking about the Nashville movement, Diane Nash and John Lewis. And them. you're talking about this is the movement they put in the documentaries. But what you rarely see is the communities that nurtured and created these people. And it's been a while since I walked them grounds. And every step I took, I was back when I was 18, 19, 20. We was marching. I went past, walked past the, the, the capital of the state of Tennessee. I sat in the governor's art, uh, office arguing with him because we had protested and done all this work in Tennessee State. And eventually now you're going to do right by us. And then the money starts flowing for the left because you know we're going to threaten you. You good old boy. You know what it is, Governor McWhorter. And so I'm walking past that. And you remember those things, but you don't, you're not remembering as an individual. You're bringing along all those people now. And about an hour, took me an hour walking up, I got to the corner of Charlotte, D.B. Todd, I make this right, D.B. Todd was a famous uh, doctor in, in Nashville. On the right, a school they call Martin Luther King High School. But that's the name of the renaming that came after desegregation, because that building is the original Pearl High School. Pearl High School is the Paul Lawrence Dunbar of Nashville. And many people listening now, Nubia, I don't care where you went to school. If you went to school in the South, or even if you went to school places where there was a substantial black community, if you went to a place where there was apartheid, or if there wasn't apartheid, just residential apartheid, like Chicago or places like that, then you know the school. These are the DuSables. These are the Dunbars. These are uh, the many different, high, the Booker T. Washingtons, like Atlanta the, or Montgomery, Alabama. These are the schools. Pearl High School was that school in Nashville. Black people achieving at the highest levels neighborhood kids for decades one of the principals washington was the principal george washington was his name george augustus washington i think george washington's daughter ended up let me see if i let me see if i remember this correctly yeah yeah george washington was the principal of pearl high school his daughter ended up marrying a young man that she met in nashville named Horace Mann Bond. Horace Mann Bond is the father of Julian Bond, who was born in Nashville. That's where they're from. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So I'm saying I have to say that I went to Washington Junior High School 
I was in the last class, seventh grade. The year after we left, they knocked the building down along with another building that was next door, Ford Green. These were the black educators of the 19th and early 20th centuries who they knocked the schools down in the name of integration. And those names have disappeared from the public memory. And the only place they persist is in the places that are not material, but literally the memories of the bodies of the elders, which is why over this break between uh, thanks, so-called Thanksgiving and so-called Christmas, sit with the elders, get them tape recorders out. If you're gonna bring your brick, re remake your place. It's not in the buildings, as, as Living Color said. You can knock a building down, but you can't erase a memory, except you can erase a memory. You can absolutely erase a memory if you do not preserve it. This is what Ampate Ba writes in Amukel, the Fool Up Boy. He, he talks about something called the undecolonizable. What is the undecolonizable? He's quoting a brother by the name of Kisukide, who says, that is the paved over. That which has disappeared beneath the blows of total colonial violence and to which it is impossible to return. If you don't recover and capture the memory of your elders now, if they leave here with those memories gone and you got to go into some archive or read some book by somebody who don't know nothing about it, I don't give a damn if they do look like you and got all the awards in the world. If you didn't get it mouth to ear, it can become un decolonizable. You can't recover it because the violence of forgetting. Meanwhile, you're looking up and they're putting up posters like Nashville's greatest public universe. The straight lie. Why? Because who's going to come? Who's going to contest that place when you let your place lapse? So I walked past Pearl High School that is now called Martin Luther King Magnet School. Excellent school. And I'm looking at, and I remember Cornelius Ridley, the basketball coach at Pearl High, the state championship winning basketball coach when it was a black school. I remember him because he was a member of our church, Cane Avenue Baptist Church on 12th Avenue South. I'm going to come back to you in a second. I won't go too far on this, but it's so important. And so, you know, I remember, you know, coming here when I was Hillsborough, we would play Pearl and we'd be on the football field. I look over their football field. They don't even got a football field no more. The little field is still there, but all the stands are going, why they don't play football anymore? No it's a magnet school. And I'm like, magnet school? Yeah, we want gifted and talented students. Okay, well, they always had gifted and talented students. Yes, but now we're, then they built a new school where my old school in Fort Green used to be, Washington and Fort Green, called Pearl Cone High School. They merged two schools. Now, okay, that's great. New building. What about the memories? Well, that's not this place. It is. We call it the Firebirds. It rose from the ashes. Why did you call Pearl High Ashes? It's not ashes, unless you tried to burn it. You know what I'm saying? So, I crossed the bridge. And as I'm crossing the bridge, I'm thinking about, because here's Pearl High. Well, I call it Pearl and uh, Martin Luther King. Now, you, you think you slick because you named it for Martin Luther King. That's Pearl High School. Going across the bridge and right across the bridge from Pearl High School to the right, Fisk University. It's a natural pipeline. You just come across the bridge to Fisk University. Across the street from Fisk, first house you see, James Weldon Johnson's house, who was at Fisk. Next house you see, next to his house, Honor Bontomps, who was the librarian at Fisk for years. And I'm walking with my stuff, I stop. Touch the ground, touch the building. Why? Because you're remembering. And it's, these are more than names to us. These are more than names to us. Avon Williams married Arna Bontomps' daughter. 
his house around the corner. Mr. Luby's house was down there. That's when they blew, they tried to blow up and kill him the way they killed Harry and Harriet Moore Christmas night in Florida. So, I mean, we're going to kill these Negroes. What? Damn. Smoking my, okay, that's, that's messed up. Okay, well, what are we doing today? Hey, man, I got to be in court. Are you going to court today? What the hell? You think, you think I'm going to let these crackers stop me? This is the placemaking, right? I'll come on the campus. I got to go to the Du Bois statue, John Hope and Aurelia Franklin Library, going to Jubilee Hall, going over there. I mean, you go, you you walk the grounds up this. Then I make the corner. I go to the barbershop. And that's when everybody told me to tell you hello. That's how I know. The place is still there. Now I'm passing million-dollar condos. I'm seeing the encroachment of the settlers, the colonial violence of forgetting the ones who will wipe your entire people out of a neighborhood and put up a plaque and take a picture in front of it like this is historic North Nashville. <laughs> yeah. Here go the highway that you paved as I've left the barbershop. Now I'm walking toward Tennessee State because within that little radius there is Fisk, Meharry, where they trained the doctors in Tennessee State. Meharry so important. James Hilder, the president of Meharry. I was talking to Ms. Merle, who's the vice president of student affairs at Tennessee State. She came by to see my mom yesterday. We sitting there on the couch. Ms. Merle is like, we got this program going because her classmate was the great Levi Watkins. Ben Carson. I want y'all to hear this. Ben Carson. Take your name. And your book, Gifted Hands, and all the important things you did, we're going to set that aside just for a second and talk governance. Because you inspired a lot of people, Ben Carson. You inspired a lot of my students. When you came to Howard University, maybe I was been there about four or five years, and you came to talk, you couldn't get in the building. And all the faculty was like, why Why these students came to this convocation? I said, y'all don't understand. See, I'm a teacher, and I've taught K-12, and I worked in public education. These are the kids that read Gifted Hands when they were in elementary and middle school. So now they're in college. Ben Carson, for them, they don't know nothing about his politics. They don't know nothing about all they know is Gifted Hands. Placemaking even comes in places where you might not necessarily look for it. But Ben Carson, I don't put Ben Carson on his mama. I put Ben Carson Carson on his mama in the sense of education, value of education. So anyway, I set out to say Ben Carson was at Johns Hopkins. But Levi Watkins was at Johns Hopkins, Tennessee State undergraduate. Levi Watkins, who was a surgeon. Levi Watkins, who made sure that black people came to Johns Hopkins for medical training. Levi, Hop- Levi Watkins, who helped organize the gospel choir. Did y'all know Johns Hopkins had a gospel choir? No. Now, when they talk about Negroes at Johns Hopkins, they may reach around and talk about Vivian Thomas, also in Nashville. Remember something the Lord made most deaf play, Vivian Thomas. There have been blacks at Hopkins, even as Hopkins was assaulting. Read the book, The Ghosts of John Hopkins. It talks about how Johns Hopkins, like Belmont College now and Belmont University in Nashville and all these other university play, Yale in New Haven, Connecticut, Harvard, for that matter, in Cambridge, occupying the neighborhood, displacing the people, cherry picking some of these poor people to come mop the floors and and empty the bedpans, all this kind of thing, as they colonize these universities that are really hedge funds, all this kind of thing. But at Hopkins, Levi Watkins, the surgeon, Levi Watkins, who went to undergraduate at HBCU, Levi Watkins, whose brother Donald uh, Watkins was a lawyer in Alabama, civil rights attorney, Levi Watkins made place for black people at Hopkins. One of those young students who came to Hopkins was James Hildred, who is the president now of Meharry Medical College. And they've got a pipeline. Ms. Merle was telling me, and I love Barbara Curry Merle. In fact, Professor Hunter, Ms. Merle said, you know, and I love her. Ms. Merle now is in her 80s. Ms. Merle came by. First thing she said, she got her car. You know how old black women are. <laughs> you know, this is a HBCU, retired HBCU administrator. Even though her salary is probably sure was a fraction of what it had been if she had been at Vanderbilt. She came to Tennessee State from Mississippi. She was Wilma Rudolph's uh, 
roommate. She sat and talked with my niece, who's a track star in Houston, right? And they sitting there talking, and I'm watching Miss Merle talk to her about Wilma Rudolph. Now, I don't care if they got all the new equipment, training equipment, and whatever, name your white school, and they got the best training table, and they got the best doctors, and you're going to go to the Olympics. You can't buy the conversation I heard, and I will not share that because it ain't mine to share. That's between an uh, elder and a junior, both women, this young woman, getting this conversation mouth to ear about Wilma Rudolph. Because then she said, you know, one, one thing I will share is, she said, you're next. That's, that's what's happening. In this little house in South Nashville, surrounded by colonizers, which is where I'm going with this. Get too deep into it. The point is this. Miss Merle, you know, with that Southern, that Mississippi. So, you know, we've got these students. Gussie's helping me, my sister. We, we raised this Levi Watkins scholarship. So she's walking me through this scholarship. And she's expanding it. Started Tennessee State, got these other schools involved. HBCUs. Here's the thing. Miss Merle starts with a simple question. She said, well, this is what she said. She said, you know, even this COVID, just, you know, you look at this and you say, I would feel better. You know, I just feel like I feel better with a black doctor. There was a black doctor in my little town that sent me to Tennessee State because he had gone to Meharry. And they had a program where you could do your undergraduate at Tennessee State and maybe go to Meharry. And she said, I got here. I got involved in student affairs. And, you know, I kind of like that. And she, Now, Ms. Merle, just put a little context on this. Miss Merle, not only roommates with Wilma Rudolph from Tennessee, Willie B. White was from her little town. She's also uh, friends with, uh, <laughs> she had a friend from Money, Mississippi. Sometimes Willie B. White. You know, Money is where Emmett Till got taken. So when Emmett Till's body was sent from Mississippi to Chicago, Miss Merle, as a teenager, remembers that because she was close with that. I mean, this is this this is the stuff. Now, you can write that in a book. You can say, or you can sit there with your elders and listen. Everybody, in fact, when she was saying this, when she started watching us talking last year, several times we brought up Mississippi and brought up her town. And now I'm saying, Miss Merle, I didn't know at 20, I didn't know at 19, I didn't know at 21, I didn't know at 30, I didn't know at 35. I know now to ask you questions I didn't know to ask 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. So now I got to ask you different kind of questions based on the fact that you've been watching us talking and saying we got to have a different kind of conversation. So anyway, I said I'd to say this. Mm. I mean, just I mean, this is when you bring your brick, don't think any brick that you bring into this room is insignificant or any more or less valuable than any other brick. It is your memory. And when you bring your memories, other people say, oh, I didn't know that. And I'm watching a woman who is a legend. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Talking about. Now she said, so so what we did was, and she walks through this whole story with me. The punchline is this. The end of the story is this. There is a pipeline now that if you got a certain score on the ACT and a GPA, I think it's 3.5 GPA, and I think you need a 28 on the ACT, which is still a, a test that a lot of people take in the South. You go to college. You can get in this program, this pipeline program at Tennessee State, and they're expanding to other HBCUs that will allow you to do your first three years in undergraduate and your fourth year, you go to a medical school. Now, the medical schools they want to send people to, Meharry is already on board. Why? Because Levi Watkins did that for the president of Meharry Medical College. Made sure he got to Hopkins when Hopkins said, we don't know whether there are any uh, black students qualified to come to Hopkins. And Dr. Watkins was like, put me on the committee. And once they put Levi Watkins on the committee, I'll go find the Hilders. I, I know where the black students are. Said, y'all, y'all, y'all ain't slick. 
You know what I'm saying? But now Ms. Merlin and them is like, we need the HBCUs to do that. And guess what? Meharry ain't the only medical school. Howard got a medical school. Morehouse School of Medicine got a medical school. And Ms. Merle, I know Barbara Curry Merle. She got anything to say about it. It's going to be, there's the pipeline. We can talk about the pipeline or we can very quietly build the pipeline with the momentum of memory and make place. Now, this is where I'll end with this. This being just sitting there listening. And again, this is really a conversation we're going to have Monday night because I got so much more I got to think about and think through. When I'm sitting there listening to her and then in the days before, every morning I get up, you my brother, sister, brother-in-law, you know, sister, you know, sister-in-law, we all, you know, and at night, me, my sister, my brother-in-law, my mom, my niece, we there. And so everybody squared away, everybody because oh, I'm going to walk up on the road. I've been doing this since I was old enough to walk. This little neighborhood, this one of them little, little inner, quote-unquote, inner-city black neighborhoods at one point. I go up on the road, there is nothing there I recognize. They call it now 12 South. The hell is 12 South? 12 South is because, like many neighborhoods, downtown Nashville, and then the black community after the Civil War. There's a place called Edge Hill, right from downtown Nashville. That's where my church is. It's still there, Cane Avenue Baptist Church. Across the street, Carter Lawrence School, named for black educators from the 19th century, coming out of enslavement. Behind that, E.S. Rose Park, E.S. Rose, fifth graduate. Rose was the pastor of an AME church in Nashville for many years. I mean, long before I was born. He made transition in the first quarter of the 20th century. But now, you know what Rose Park is? Rose Park is the athletic facility that the city of Nashville partnered with Belmont University, the colonizer now, who pumped millions of dollars into that and made it a, a, a college-level baseball training facility and soccer. And the black residents steadily being displaced. Now, here's the Come across the street, there's a senior citizen building. That building, which brought me back to this brother. Remember, remember Professor, how we talked about this? this brother right here, D4 Bailey at the Grand Ole Opry. A yes. black star, early country music. D4 Bailey, when he made transition, let me just read this. D4 Bailey says, I'm an old man now, but they will never get out of a harp what I can. They just wasting their time trying to beat me on a harp. Ain't nobody ever set me down with no harp. Trying to beat me blowing is like trying to outrun a Greyhound bus. I got notes harder than Muhammad Ali can throw. I could throw some notes on him that would fair paralyze him. 1971, the rough and tumble neighborhood of Edge Hill, which DeFord had once called Rocktown, was becoming a more respectable black neighborhood. Urban renewal had removed most of the truly rundown slum buildings and created wide streets, modern lighting park. Go on. I'm not going to talk about this. Now, point is this. Wait, I should read this. By 1970, the Nashville Housing Authority had bought DeFord's old house and torn it down. 1970, I was five years old. Um, now, at 56, what I would not give to have had somebody in my community that would have said, you this old man right here, that's DeFore Bailey. That ain't gonna mean nothing to you today. But when you're talking to Karen Hunter <laughs> 50 years from now, you would say, you know what? Every every time we go to Edge Hill Avenue, I was passing DeFore Bailey's house, but the house he lived in, they tore it down. Now there's a sign there that says DeFore Bailey on that corner that has been colonized. And this is what they do. They destroy your physical place, then put up a plaque and congratulate themselves. Now, let me continue. It says, 
A year later, it took over his shoe shine parlor at the corner of Edge Hill and 12th. Soon it was going too. And DeFord found himself living in a federally subsidized high rise for the elderly, located, ironically, just across the corner from where he had operated his shoe sign stand. Now, I won't go on because it gets into it. My point is this. D. Fort Bailey, one of the founders of the so-called Grand Old Opry, who was put out to Opry eventually, who never really got, who's never gotten the attention he's supposed to get, was known in the neighborhood, in that neighborhood of David Morton, who wrote this book, D. Fort Bailey, A Black Star, Early Country Music, important book, but you don't know. A rundown neighborhood? I, my first class I taught of children was at the community center, the Edge Hill Community Center, the summer I graduated from Tennessee State before I went to law school, 1987. Rundown community. I talk to children, and those children have children now. I said, "Don't, don't you ever talk about our community." So you pass that, you keep going. All this stuff is gone. Where we used to ride our bikes, our stuff. I get down in my house, and before I get to my house in that two block area, all these. This is about a ten minute ride from downtown Nashville. Fifteen tops. White people have bought it all. Reese Witherspoon got. A boutique there. Dolly Parton got a record. Remember that story? Dolly Parton said, I took my royalties for I Will Always Love You and put it in the black community. Do you remember that? You don't remember that, do you? <laughs> uh oh. I remember. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's yeah. not true. Well, it is true if you want to include the ancestors who come up and down that street, but ain't no black people there no more. It's historic black. Dolly and Dolly bought. Before the wave came in, but Dolly ain't her people ain't stopped nobody. The funeral home where my father lay, Atkins, gone. They're gonna put a boutique hotel there in 19 condos. Bob Bell's market, Mr. Bell, who we used to go up there, his son, I mean his younger brother and all them. We used to be, we take a quarter and play Miss Pac-Man all day and make Bob mad because we were so good at it that he couldn't make no money on the machine. Is the buildings that they done gutted it and now it's a boutique ice cream and all this old BS. You come down, the place I bought my comic books, Dr. Neely, Mr. Neely, the pharmacist, the black pharmacist, two black pharmacists in South Nashville, is now a blue jean shop around the corner. You know, where my cousin Ethelene came up from Alabama, my, my mother's brother's daughter, my Uncle Doc came up, who went to St. Augustine as an undergrad. We were kids, and she'd come up there with us, and we, so we call her Little T. Why? Because she was our cousin, but she was closer in age to our aunties in terms of age, so we call her Little T. We, I mean, all that now, white people and dogs and, and all of them transplants, none of them from Nashville, and even the white people who lived in the neighborhood aren't there anymore, and you can't afford to buy. We get down to my street, I go down there, I sit on the porch of my mama's house, and listen to them tell me about how many times did they call? How much for this house? And then they stop calling, because I'm at home on the phone, hello? Yes. Uh, how much for your house? Well, let's see. We intend on giving this house back to the Indians. And when we go back to Africa and you go back to where you're from, that will be the day and we'll negotiate with the Indians. We'll probably just give it to them. Mm. Hello? Hello? Mm. Ring, how much for the house? Well, let's see. When the sun expands and burns up the earth, I figure it'll be recycled then into the darkness and it will come back for another phase. But uh, hello? Hello? How much for the house? Well, I don't know. Uh, it's July and it's not cold outside, so I'm assuming the hell's not yet freezing over. So, it, hello, <laughs> <laughs> you go to hell, place. If you've got physical, if you got land somewhere, 
you some of y'all don't even know you got land because you ain't listened to your answer your elders yet gotta gather those stories so now and this is i say i keep saying i'm in and i'm looking at the clock and i keep saying that i don't do it no 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 it's important it's important because i mean because here we go we got the only reason i was there is because everybody was there and i can't not be there if everybody is there because this is the place making sitting listening to these stories sitting thinking through with people listening to elders watching elders and juniors come together seeing those children who you know and these these little nieces i got you know how y'all are children you you children some of y'all children y'all know how y'all are you know my daddy would come work he done worked all day then worked his second job at the medical arts building on vanderbilt's campus after he worked at the VA. he'd be so tired sit down at that table eat some cornbread pinto beans and fall asleep at the table wake up with all kind of barrettes in his hair because my sister has plaited his hair <laughs> and put i mean you know this way. so now her nieces my nieces little girls my mama go to sleep in the chair she wake up and got the most elaborate blue fingernail with designs and these, these girls are not even one of them not even single not even double digits in age how did you they done given her the manicure what and they had to do it this time. I'll tell you why. Because the last time they went to Texas and did it, it's been several months and it grew out, but my mom wouldn't let nobody touch her fingernails because her nieces did that. <laughs> I mean, her grandchildren did that. And so therefore, you got to wait till they can do it again. Why? Because you know how because you know how you elders are. If the grandbaby did it, that is the most beautiful thing that could be done. <laughs> so why when you anytime some of y'all know who got home training from the governance structure and the ways of knowing you show up at church with the little thing they put on your lapel, you show up with the little, you know, this is what you do. Now, my daddy had to take them braids out to go uh, and, 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 and barrettes to go to work, but that's so that's a whole nothing and never got mad. But anyway, so as I'm walking from the airport, I'm sorry, from downtown out to North Nashville, passing these places, thinking, reflecting, thinking about what I'm going to do, how we're going to talk, including this conversation today. As I'm leaving my house, once I go to South Nashville and go post up in one of these coffee shops and listen to these colonizers who are oblivious to every place they're playing, including Mr. Neely's drugstore sitting right there in the corner. And there's a block of stone in the front of it with like little seats they've made and carved into the stone is Martin Luther King's quote that we are in an inescapable garment and talking again. I'm saying, how are we woven together and y'all don't know Dr. Neely? How are we woven together and y'all don't know uh, uh, Becker's Bakery that y'all have turned into something else? How are we woven together and you put a barbecue restaurant up here and put your great-grandfather's picture on it and saying, this tradition goes all the way back. It don't go all the way back in this neighborhood, except the violence of forgiving and forgetting is creating a situation where if the people even in my neighborhood don't listen to the elders, it will be undecolonizable. And so we have to bring these bricks to rebuild ourselves because there's going to come a day when we displace them again because D4 Bailey got displaced as black people began to build out and the city created other spaces. So D4 Bailey himself was part of a displacement that my father, my uncle, and them got houses in that neighborhood and white people ran and as they were running in their last mode of contempt they tried to flip the houses and my daddy had to go get mr luby avon williams partner to stop it from having this is the restricted covenant ages we'll talk about that another day but i'm saying i'd say as i'm walking i find myself humming because it is the stretch now we're in the stretch between the holiday for colonization and the holiday for commercialization and we got 
so-called Thanksgiving on Thursday, then in the Black Friday, then Cyber Monday. I was reading Financial Times today. All the numbers are going back up. People buying all kind of stuff. And that actually, interestingly enough, the same sister you talked about a, a couple of months ago, uh, Professor Hunter, if I can find it very quickly, I'll, I'll, I probably won't be able to find it quickly. I wish I could. Oh, wait, here we go. Maybe up here. It may be in this section, Life and Arts. Uh, the, the, the African sister. Yeah, here she is. Uh, Ikuma Oporo, uh, Nigerian sister. See, putting the giving into Thanksgiving. This sister tells the story of the origins of Giving Tuesday. She says, she says, this weekend starts with Thanksgiving Thursday, a day with troubling colonial associations, strangely sanctioned for stuffing ourselves with an excess of food until all we can do is sleep the evening away. That is followed by Black Friday, the biggest shopping day of the year, officially set aside for going out into the obscene, obscenely crowded stores that, with, that open at the crack of dawn and waiting in long lines to spend money buying a range of things we probably don't need but can't resist because they are 50% off. Uh, the four-day holiday is followed by Cyber Monday, the biggest online shopping day of the year. It's not just in the U.S. Black Friday and Cyber Monday are global phenomenon now, but about almost two years into the global pandemic, people's financial circumstances have changed. And she walks through how you're going to keep up trying, trying to keep up appearances in a very uncertain world. The stock market, in fact, that was the front page article. Stocks and oil pads because they got this new variant coming on. They don't know what's going to happen. But then she says, Giving Tuesday. The one day globally recognized as a day of generosity is always the Tuesday after Thanksgiving. It came about because nine years ago in the summer, of, in the autumn of 2012, Henry Thames, a British man living in New York, was sitting at his kitchen table reflecting on the cultural phenomena of millions of people around the world committing these particular days entirely to consumerism. He wondered if, given the opportunity, people would also commit an entire day of giving to others, to being generous, it goes on. And I'm saying, that's a great idea. But it's only an idea because you came from a way of knowing where that's not at the center. That is absolutely the center of African ways of knowing. And so when I think of Thanksgiving, I don't think of the Klan on, on, on Thanksgiving, even 1915. I don't think of the settler colonialism except to say we shouldn't be celebrating this day. This is Indigenous People's Day in, in one way, and it's a day of mourning. So we should always mark that. But when we see families coming together, that is very African in terms of how African people do that, including what I did. And so as I'm walking, we are now in the corridor. We talked about the Macy's Parade and all that last week. And I find myself humming my favorite Christmas song. <laughs> because I'm always humming. I go in old bookstores in the South, I promise you, there isn't an old bookstore. When I smell them old books and I see these old white people in there, because mostly old white people who know me, because I'll be one of the few blacks in there. Now with, with, with Nubia, I know y'all be in there too, which is I'm glad to have company for those who aren't already doing it. And I'll find myself <laughs> why am I whistling Dixie? Because it's a Dixie bookstore. Y'all know them old black, uh, those old bookstores in the South? They have the biggest Civil War sections. I'll be going book by book. Y'all know how I do. I got so many books on the Civil War out of these old bookstores and say less. But as I'm walking, now we all know, hang on the mistletoe. That ain't it. My favorite is an interesting song because I don't think of it as a Christmas song. I think of it as in the Africana Studies framework, since that's been developed, since we developed that, as a song that lives on the fault line between the governance structure and the social structure. It's a song that <laughs> it has a very interesting provenance. Have you ever heard uh, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas? Of course. What do you think about that song? Or do you think about it? You may not think about it. 
it depends on who's singing it. Oh, okay. Say say some more. You know, if it's if it's a black artist, I'm trying to think. Uh, the last person that uh, did Michael Jackson do a version of that? He might have. He might have. He yeah, might have. He depends might on who's singing it. Um, but I haven't thought about, and this is part of the thing that we're doing here. It is. 99% of the stuff we do, we don't think about it. No. There's a little thought, which leads to the maturity question as well. If we're doing things so thoughtlessly, you know. That's true. Um, this is this is part of the mindfulness that we need to have. So That's true. what do you think about it? Well. Tell well, us. Just not, the car. No, 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 no. This, this is one, and it snuck up on me because I, what I needed was, I needed the language that would help me understand why I think about it this way. This is a song, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, that was written for Judy Garland. 1944. Uh, you know the song. You know the uh, you know the the uh, the movie. Meet me in St. Louis. Some of y'all may know that movie. How we get Julie? This is two years. This is two weeks in a row. We was talking about the Wizard of Oz last week. <laughs> Let me get Judy Garland out to paint. I mean, you know, you don't need to take up a whole lot of space. But anyway, Judy Garland, the original lyricist, and I wish that I I wish that I had the. Uh, the name of the original lyricist, but it's unimportant for what we're talking about. She, the, the original draft was like, have yourself a merry little Christmas. Uh, next year may be too late. Uh, something like, I mean, it, it was kind of sad. She said, I don't, I don't want to sing this song because she's singing to a little girl in this scene. She said, if I sing this girl, this little, this song this way, it's so sad the little girl gonna cry and everybody watching the movie gonna think I'm a monster. <laughs> so no. So they changed the lyric. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Uh, hmm. Uh, let's see. Make the Utah bright. From now on, our troubles will be out of sight. Is that how it goes? It's uh, have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. Let your heart be light. Okay, so that's it. That's it. Okay, so that's good. Yeah, so. Now, Frank Sinatra has recorded, so many people have recorded, but there's only one recording, as far as I'm concerned. Some of y'all know the great Lou Rawls from Chicago. Come on. You'll never find. You'll never find. <laughs> I, I was born in a dump. My daddy, no, no, my mama cried and my daddy got drunk. Yeah. Lou Rawls is, is a blues singer. You hear Sam Cooke? If you ever change your mind about leaving, leaving me behind. You hear Sam singing, oh, won't you bring it to me? Bring your sweet loving. Bring it on home to me. Next voice you hear yeah. is Lou Rawls. Yeah, that's Lou Rawls. <laughs> this is Chicago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is a blues singer. Lou Rawls got an arrangement by a brother named H.B. Barnum, Heidel Brown Barnum Jr. Still alive, born in Houston, Texas. And you know Professor Hunter who interviewed Heidel Barnum Jr., the great Larry Crow for the History Makers. Come on, Larry. I had no idea. Larry didn't talk to everybody. Larry talked to Adam Barnum. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. You know, Larry, oh, yeah, I talked to him. Matter of fact. Matter of fact, Heidel Barnum worked on Broadway, 
Harold Barnum was the musical director for Aretha Franklin for a time. He worked with Donna Washington. He worked with all kinds. I mean, you name Glass Knight and the Pips, The Temptations, Martha Reeves. I mean, this brother came up, father from Louisiana, mother from Texas. I mean, just amazing. Now in, 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 in L.A. as an elder. Harold Barnum and a guy named David Axelrod, not the politician or journalist, whoever, whoever you want to call himself. They did an arrangement in 1970, uh, 1967. Lou Rawls did a version of Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. And when you hear it, if you listen very carefully, you got to listen carefully to Rawls on this. What you hear is placemaking. See, for black people, when you talk about community, it's placemaking. That's why I think we love Donnie Hathaway, another Chicago. Hang all the mistletoe. I'm gonna get to know you better this Christmas. It's intimate. It's two people. Fireside blazing bright with Caroline. You, you, you got two people. But Lou Rawls? Lou Rawls takes a song that started with an element of melancholy that was so heavy that Judy Garland wouldn't sing it with the original lyrics that has been recorded many times as a favorite, and he takes that blue sensibility and that Heidel Barnum arrangement and turns it into someone who, and here's the, the relationship between the social structure and the governance structure is like this. Who we are to other people and who we are to each other often come up against each other. So as I'm walking the streets of my home where I was born, even though I'm an African born in this country, I realize that my home is, isn't in these buildings it's in the memories and it's in the people. It's in the place making and that places change. And our lives are not flames that come into existence and burst out. I'm sorry, Thomas Wolf. I'm sorry you felt that way. I see where all that tragic shit comes from, which is why you shouldn't have your children reading all that stuff in high school. Great Gatsby and all that old BS. Yeah, you set that aside long enough to go get in some conversations with the literature of your ancestors who don't have that pessimistic view of life. But as I'm listening, as I'm walking, I realize why this has come up into my spirit as I'm walking and looking at places that are no longer there, but they've been redefined. And I'm finding the places that are still there physically. And I'm finding the people because Lou Rawls is right at that center. He is in the governance structure, who we are to each other. And he's aware of the social structure. And in that song, he finds a way to be on that line between social structure and governance structure, but to be on the line from the side of governance structure, critiquing social structure at the same time. Now, there are people who will be in the social structure, I'm talking about black people now, who want to uh, engage in conversation with the governance structure, but they're standing on the social structure line. And sometimes they get real close. That's why I like the 1619 Project and stuff. I see a lot of governance stuff in there, but you on the social structure side. You haven't gotten the balance right. We can't come over there with you because then we're going to run the risk of becoming undecolonizable. Our memories will be erased. We ain't born on the water, but Lou Rawls, listen to it. Starting with that, with those horns come in. So you know it's going to be a little blues, but you can have that with Nelson Riddle arranging for Frank Sinatra. Rawls isn't overselling. He comes in. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. He doesn't come now, have yourself a merry little Christmas. He doesn't hit the notes. He It's almost like he's talking. When he says Christmas twice, it's it's not even, it's almost like a touch. He said, have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light 
and he's pronouncing, enunciating Ella Fitzgerald, Dinah Washington. You can hear he's, he's, he's talking the song. From now on, our troubles will be out of sight. Then he repeats it, out of sight. <laughs> Why don't you have that chuckle? That's some bullshit. <laughs> our, our troubles ain't going nowhere. But you got to listen, listen to this song. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. From now on, our troubles will be out of sight. Out of sight. <laughs> Why don't you have yourself? Getting a little strong. He's telling you now. Go home. Talk to your people. Listen to your people. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Make the Utah gay. Now he about to tell you something he believes. From now on, our troubles will be miles away. Then Bottom puts them horns up on it. Mm, mm, mm. And then he comes in with a little oblique. Here we are, as in olden days. Happy golden days of yore. Then he says, uh, faithful friends who are near to us, gather dear to us. Once more through the years, we all will be together. He's talking it. Then he says, then he hits the ear. If the fates allow, D4, Bailey, I'm, I'm thinking these places aren't here anymore. You don't remember Avon Williams. Don't remember Kelly Miller Jr. You don't remember D4, Bailey. We walk there. If the fates allow, if they move your whole neighborhood out, if you couldn't do anything to stop it, it doesn't mean your place disappears unless you let it disappear. If the through the years, we all will be together. If the fates allow. And then he comes back around and he says, hang a shining star upon the highest bough. Have yourself a merry little Christmas now. So you hear the blue note, and then Bornham brings in the vibraphone. Now I'm thinking Milt Jackson. Is this the modern jazz quartet? I mean, Lionel Hampton. Blah, 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 blah. And he changed the key. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. He's giving you the prescriptive. It's like this man is singing a say by eat. Oh, let your heart be light. From now on, our troubles will be out of sight. He don't laugh again, because now he's in the second verse. He's giving you the blueprint. You make your place now. This is the place between November and December when you go sit with your people, you eat their food, you listen to their jokes, you make sure that the brown liquor is flowing, you keep the children eating in their place, you go talk to them, and then you bring everybody together, you let the elders sing the song. He's giving you the thing. And then he says, you know, here we are as in olden days, happy golden days of yore. In the second verse, he's just letting it go. Faithful friends who are near to us, gather dear to us once more. Then he brings it home and he talks his way through that last part of it. Through the years, we all will be together. 
that's if the fates allow. Then it gives you the final directive. I can see him like an old man pointing out the, out the recliner in the corner. Why don't you hang a shining star upon the highest bow? The music getting louder and louder. He says, have yourself a merry little Christmas now. We don't need no giving Tuesday. We give every day. Keep your money in your pocket, Black Monday, uh, Cyber Monday or Black Friday, unless you're getting something from somebody who can't get it for themselves. Remember who you are in your ways of knowing. And between now and the end of the year, go sit with some elders and remember and bring your brick and let's build some stuff. Maybe we should start doing the money. But I'm going to stop there and put on some Lou Ross. Put on that Lou Ross. But put on that Lou Ross and think about that. I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop with that. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> no. <laughs> anyway. Uh, oh man. Um the the chat is on fire. I I don't even I was like, where is he going with the with the damn song? And, and now we got chills. My my heart is fluttering. I'm like, yo, that I, I can't I can't do it. Lou Raw, will you put that Lou Raw? I promise you, Preston, when you play that. Let me let me find the Lou Ross. Oh them. no! Because <laughs> because this ain't gonna end up on YouTube, so they ain't gonna copyright strike my ass because they can have it. That's social structure. Uh, I'm going to find everybody, everybody who's not in Nubia will have to. Uh, this part won't be what we looking at. Nah, matter of fact, um, I feel like I'm gonna take out a whole lot of uh, today um, because uh, you 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 revealed a lot. Hold on, let me see if I can. Let me just pause this because I want to I want to share the screen at the same time. Okay. So I have to do it a little differently. Y'all just bear with me and I'm going to come over here. This is Live streaming can be tricky and sometimes trying to find the right. All right. It's commercial. They can't, we can't be stopped. We can't stop. Get out of here. All right. Hold on. Hold on, y'all. Share where the hell are you, Dr. Carr? I just lost you on the okay. Here you I'm are. Here. All right, share the screen. Here we go. Here we go. Uh, da, da, da. Share the tab. Share he this. Did, he share didn't always did perform. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Who no, right. in Ralph Lane? Is this this is the one? Yeah. Okay. Capital Records. <laughs> Once more through the 
you the faithful out Hang a shining star upon the highest bough Have yourself a very little Christmas much uh, family we'll see you on monday uh office hours we're gonna do um a best of dr senyata won't be in tomorrow uh we'll do a best of i'll pull something that you haven't seen uh and drop that in nubia and uh you know uh we we got work to do um but the work starts with us you know it starts with us us, and we all are are working towards it so nobody feel bad about what you don't know oh no about wherever you came into this at you know just be glad we're here now because uh, right. we need you in that's your right. full self. So that's right. That's but definitely right. the journey. Uh, and no more um, bringing into office hours anything about any white person being black. We don't care. <laughs> it's all right. Just, no, no, don't say less, doctor. Uh, just for me. Yes. You no, know, all of that is again some us putting them in the center of our situation. We got to build from this clean space. Yes, we do. Oh, everybody and their mother was black. Yes. How do we free us right now? That's got to be the ultimate. When y'all come in to ask questions of Dr. Carr, first of all, ask your questions. I'm in there as a spectator. So I'm just like, ask your question. I understand y'all got backstories and all. We're going to have time for all of that. Ask your question. You got the opportunity to talk to this man. Ask him the question and get out because other people be mindful. We are all here together. It's not just you and him. It's like 
hundreds of us. And I think it was up to 600 people. Yeah. Office hours. I'm sitting there. Ask the question. Oh, you talking about Monday? Yeah, for, 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 for office hours. Yeah, absolutely. Please ask the question. And I will, and I'll be a lot shorter because I'm good for that. I'll be in it. You, and she, she, was she like, has to gather me. I'm like, no. <laughs> Next person. All right. I love yeah. you. I love, I love you too. Hey, listen, y'all. If y'all, if y'all not in Nubia, in this, in the Lou Ross didn't make it in. First of all, you know I already cleared anything I said. Well, they ain't gonna see it though. <laughs> right, but I'm saying y'all got to go find it for yourselves. Oh, come on. Well, anyway, ain't gonna say come on. We say less on that. But you know anything I said today about folks is stuff that I cleared with them because I just think my thing is we was always oversharing. We either gonna win or we not gonna win. Ain't nobody scared. <laughs> you people who think we scared. Avon Williams was not scared. They blew up Lizzie Alexander Luby house. I'm just saying, I can't, I wouldn't be able to sleep at night, Professor Hunter, if I was, if I knew that and knew some of these people hand to hand, mouth to ear and acted differently. At that point, I would have betrayed what they, I mean, you know, you take a lap and give it to me and then I go hide somewhere or think I can write a book and then hide. Mm -mm, I ain't changing nothing. No, no. No, I can't, I can't. And not and call myself part of them. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Anyway, so oh thank you.